Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. <clears throat> we welcome uh, Mr. David Friedman, uh, who's been nominated to be ambassador to Israel. We also welcome uh, two very distinguished guests, uh, two members, uh, a member and a former member that have uh, tremendous respect by all of us up here. We thank you for coming. I know that y'all are going to introduce. Uh, ben and I are going to defer our opening comments, so you don't have to sit through that. And uh, we'll let you go ahead and introduce. I do want to make, uh, I, I talked to some of the folks here that from time to time have a tendency to want <clears throat> to interrupt the meeting a little bit. Um, in the past, uh, I've asked some people to be removed. And um, as it turned out, they were arrested. I was able to get them unarrested. <laughs> but I don't have that ability anymore. The protocol is that if you're asked to be removed from a meeting, um, you're arrested, and I don't have the ability anymore to keep that from happening. So if you would, please don't put yourself in a position to need to be removed. Um, we thank everybody for being here. It's part of our democratic process that people participate. We're glad to have everyone here. And with that, let me turn to, uh, to a friend of all of us, um, the great senator from the state of South Carolina, Senator Lindsey Graham. Well, thank you. Uh, to the protesters, I'm a lawyer. I come cheap if you do get arrested. Uh, <laughs> but you'll, pro you'll probably get what you pay for. What yeah. you pay for. Uh, yeah. so, Mr. Chairman, <laughs> nobody believes he comes cheap. Let me tell you. <laughs> Speaking of lawyers, uh, Mr. Friedman is described as a deal-making bankruptcy lawyer and also a very good trial lawyer. I can't think of a better choice to go to the Mideast than a bankruptcy lawyer, except maybe a divorce lawyer. So, uh, I haven't known Mr. Friedman that long, personally, but I've <clears throat> known him by reputation as being a very passionate supporter of the state of Israel. Uh, everybody up here, I think, deserves to be described as pro-Israel. Having said that, that doesn't mean we can't disagree as to what that means. Um, I think most of us agree that when the UN uh, uh, has 20 resolutions against Israel for their settlement policy and six against the world at large, it sort of lost their way. But I think it's okay to tell Israel, be careful about settlements. The president said that. I think a lot of us would agree that Israel uh, is the only democracy in a very troubled re region, and they're not beyond criticism. You can be pro-Israel and criticize the government or the policies of any particular government. I understand that, and that's what makes us a unique friend to Israel. Sometimes you have to tell your friends things they need to hear. Uh, so settlement policy is a contentious issue. We have different views about it, but I think the president struck a good tone yesterday. The pro-Israel community, the American Jewish community is divided like every other group in America. <laughs> we have APAC, we have J Street, and we have the RJC. All of them believe they're pro-Israel and the other group's a little crazy. That's why we have so many different views. Mr. Friedman is very passionate. He has said some things that I don't agree with, but I never doubt uh, that he did it based on what he thought was the right thing to say at the time, and what is encouraging to me that Mr. Friedman has said, maybe I need to watch my rhetoric. That's why I believe he is the right guy at the right time. He'll be Trump's voice. Trump won the election. 
Secretary Clinton would not have picked Mr. Friedman. Donald Trump picked him because I believe President Trump understands that Mr. Friedman would be a voice consistent with Trump's view of the U.S.-Israel relationship, that he's qualified, that he has the experience and the passion and the skill set to be America's voice, not just Trump's voice. To my Democratic colleagues, I know what it's like to be disappointed in an election outcome. I haven't voted for a president who's won in 12 years. But I find myself supporting people for jobs that I would not have picked. The one thing I would say about David Friedman, that he loves the United States and Israel with all of his heart and all of his soul, that he's been effective as a lawyer, that his reputation as a lawyer is beyond reproach. And what does a good lawyer do? A good lawyer tries to take people with differing views to get to a win-win situation, to represent your client with passion, but also to understand that the other side has an interest too. When you look at his career as a lawyer, those on the other side of Mr. Friedman would say that he's an honest, ethical, capable advocate that you can do business with. I believe he will bring that skill set to the job of U.S. Ambassador to Israel. The only democracy in a region that is falling apart. If Israel ever needed a strong voice in her court, it is now. If Israel ever needed a unified Congress, it is now. Israel can be criticized, but Israel needs to be supported, and Mr. Friedman will give that support. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now, um, Senator, that again is loved on both sides of the aisle and, and missed, um, was a strong and great voice for our country's national security and foreign policy issues. We welcome Joe Lieberman, and thank you for being here today. Thanks uh, very much, Mr. Chairman, for your generous words. Uh, I don't know about Lindsay, but I was actually looking forward to the opening statement you and Senator Cardin were going to make. But <laughs> I see you still act like a politician. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as my wife says, I have an incurable disease. So <laughs> anyway, like all of our spouses. Uh, Chairman uh, Corcoran, Senator Cardin, members of the uh, committee, uh, former colleagues, friends, uh, I'm really delighted to be here this morning to introduce my friend David Friedman, who of course is before the committee as the president's nominee to be the next ambassador to Israel. Uh, after I left the Senate in 2013, I became senior counsel at the law firm of Kasowitz, Benson, Torres, and Friedman, as in David Friedman. Um, probably neither David or I thought that uh, we would both be here this morning at that time uh, when I joined the firm. Uh, but I have, I have, in those four years, come to know David, uh, first as a legal uh, colleague, and I will tell you that I've learned uh, a lot from him. Uh, he has uh, uh, extraordinary professional skills that will serve him well as ambassador. And I'm, I'm thinking of uh, really great intelligence, a warm personality that engages or engenders trust, and an impressive ability to advocate a cause, but also uh, to know 
went to compromise and negotiate so that uh, all parties can uh, walk away from a dispute uh, feeling that they've accomplished something. Now that I say that, I, I may want to suggest that Congress retain David for mediating uh, purposes. Um, okay, I couldn't resist that. Uh, beyond our association in the law firm, uh, David Friedman and I have become uh, really good personal friends and if, if and what might be called a point of personal privilege, I, I want to explain how that happened. Uh, for th uh, three years, our uh, youngest daughter, Hani, who some of you may remember, uh, lived with her husband and growing family in Woodmere, New York. Uh, at the time, they uh, resided in a two-bedroom apartment with one bathroom, Hani, Daniel, and their two boys, who then became three boys. Uh, thank God. When Hadassah, my wife, and I visited, uh, the only place we could uh, sleep was on a sofa bed in the living room. Um, I would say diplomatically, it wasn't comfortable. And um, now I uh, confess my own shortcomings. It was I, not my uh, sainted wife, who said, we've got to find another place nearby to stay when we're visiting our children and grandchildren. It happens that David and Tammy Friedman live a 10-minute walk from uh, where our uh, uh, children live, and they have a great guest suite. That, as they say in the movie, was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, during those three years, incidentally, my children are now in Pikesville, the birthplace and growing place in Baltimore of Senator Cardin. So they chose well. They chose well, and they have a much bigger house, and we have our own room now. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something, Mr. No, Chairman. Not. During these three years, we shared a lot of time and, and a lot of Sabbaths together with David and Tammy Friedman, and we got to know them very well. Uh, they're genuinely devoted to each other and their family. They have the best of values and live by them. Tammy is a, a bright, compassionate, very likable person who will be, uh, I believe, as great a partner in diplomacy uh, if David is confirmed as ambassador as she'd been a partner to him uh, in life. Uh, during those weekends with the Freedmans, David and I uh, had a lot of time uh, to talk about things, and I reached some conclusions uh, about him that I think are relevant to his nomination to be ambassador that I want to uh, share in just a few sentences. First, he is a patriotic, proud, and grateful American. Grateful for the opportunities America uh, has given his family uh, and him. Second, uh, he knows a lot about Israel and cares deeply about its relationship uh, with the United States. I'm confident that he will bring his uh, considerable personal skills to bear to strengthen uh, this uh, very important bilateral relationship. As I suggested earlier, I don't think David ever dreamed that he would be nominated to be America's ambassador to Israel, but then again, he probably never dreamed that one of his clients who became his friend would end up as president of the United States either. The fact that he has such a close personal relationship with the president, a trusting relationship, I think will help him uh, be an extraordinary ambassador and enable him to strengthen the already strong bridges 
between the United States and Israel at a difficult time uh, for Israel, but also for the United States. Until a few months ago, David Friedman's life has basically been private. No more. Uh, I must say that the David Friedman I have seen described sometimes in the media in the last several weeks is not the thoughtful, capable, personable, and even funny David Friedman uh, I know. Um, has David ever said or written anything that he wishes now he had phrased differently or even not said at all? I believe he, he has. He does. Uh, who hasn't? I certainly um, have said some things I wish I could uh, rephrase or not say at all. So I ask you to listen to what he has to say today with an open mind. If he has said something in the past that bothers you, ask him about it, but please uh, put it in the larger context of his life, his character, his capability, and his deep desire to serve uh, our country. From many long conversations we have had over the years, I can tell you that David Friedman doesn't only pray for peace uh, between Israel and its neighbors every day. He yearns for it. And if you confirm him, he will, as U.S. Ambassador to Israel, do everything anyone could do to achieve peace between Israel and its neighbors. Uh, in short, I believe David Friedman deserves the support of this committee and the full Senate. And if I may, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, I, I do want to say that I hope that support will be bipartisan, because it would be a shame to have this committee and the Senate divide along party lines on a matter so central to America's relationship with Israel, which has historically and importantly been a safe zone of nonpartisanship, even when just about everything else was divided along party lines. Uh, I thank you. Uh, very much for giving me this opportunity, and I'm very proud to introduce David Friedman uh, to you and the committee. Thank you so much. Uh, we, we appreciate both of you being here and your comments. Uh, you're welcome to uh, leave. We do not consider that impolite. I will say if you stay, it's likely you'll be interrogated, so I'd leave. Um, with that, uh, let me make a brief opening comment. I know that Senator Cardin does. Just for the state of play, I know we have a vote at 1030 that'll drag on for a while. Hopefully we can get through Mr. Friedman's opening comments, uh, take a break for a moment, and then come back and, and return for questioning. I want to welcome Mr. David Friedman to the committee today to discuss his nomination to be our ambassador to Israel. Over the last 70 years, the United States and Israel have enjoyed a close and meaningful relationship. This alliance has been a pillar of American and Israeli foreign policy and greatly beneficial to both nations. Israel serves as the greatest model for democracy in the Middle East and is our most important ally in the region. American support for Israel is a widespread bipartisan effort, and it should remain so. Congress has repeatedly pushed for increased military aid and security cooperation between our two countries, and I believe that we have taken necessary steps to ensure that Israel will have, a very, have every tool and resource needed to defend itself in an increasingly destabilized region. Yet even as we in Congress have done the things needed to strengthen our bond with Israel, 
We have to acknowledge that the relationship between our two great nations has been strained in recent years. It is clear that action taken by the UN Security Council in December was counterproductive to reaching a long-term peace between, the, between Israel and the Palestine, Palestinian people. A durable peace agreement will only come from direct negotiations. Any third-party efforts to supersede those negotiations only serve to as impediments to peace. In a neighborhood uh, torn apart by terrorism and civil war, the disproportionate focus on Israel by the UN runs counter to the organization's stated goals. So with these challenges in mind and the onset of a new administration, now more than ever, we must recommit ourselves to the vital long-term support of Israel. Mr. Friedman, we are here to consider your nomination to be the U.S. Ambassador to Israel and to be the President's Chief Representative uh, to that country. I look forward to hearing more today about how you will promote increased cooperation between our two nations, your views on the two-state solution and other avenues towards peace, and how you will be an effective instrument for achieving the policy goals of the United States. We thank you for being here, and I'll turn to my friend and ranking member, Senator Cardin. Oh, thank you, Chairman Corker and Mr. Freeman. Welcome. We welcome your family. It's good to have everyone here. We thank you for your willingness uh, to serve the public in this in criti critically important position as the United States Ambassador to Israel. The U.S.-Israel relationship is a strategic anchor for the United States in the Middle East. Indeed, it is one of the most important relationships of any country. It is a deep and genuine friendship that extends across our governments and enriches by intense, deep people-to-people -people ties. Your nomination comes at a critical point for Israel and for the U.S.-Israel relationship. As I know my colleagues on the committee appreciate, Israel finds itself in a sea of instability confronted with threats on every border. To the south, ISIS in the Sinai continues to be a serious security threat despite much improved cooperation with Egypt. As recently as last week, ISIS militants launched a barrage of rockets into a lot. To the west, Hamas maintains a stronghold in Gaza and is diverting materials intended for civilians to rebuild its rocket arsenal and construct terror tunnels into Israel. To the north, Hezbollah is gaining battlefield experience in Syria that will inevitably be focused on Israel when the terror group's fighters return to Lebanon. To the east, the war in Syria is a magnet for violent extremists, and Iran, with Russia's acquiescence, maintains a strategic corridor with a willing Assad in Damascus to its proxy force Hezbollah in Lebanon. And across the region, Iranian regimes continue to spew anti-Semitic and anti-Israel rhetoric, sponsoring terror groups that pose a direct threat to Israel's security. In contrast to its neighbors, and at a time when forces of authoritarianism, xenophobia, and illiberalism are on the rise in all too many places, Israel is and remains a vibrant democracy. It is home to a lively civil society and energetic, opinionated political discourse. Its vibrant and diverse economy offers tremendous opportunities for its high-tech sector and a startup culture to its achievements in agriculture and alternative energy. Our defense sector has collaborated to produce Iron Dome, a life-saving missile defense system. Israel's innovative green and renewable energy sector, one of the leaders in the world, puts Israel in a, a, a position to be an energy provider to the region. 
The U.S. ambassador to Israel plays a key role in engaging all communities within Israel, all sectors of its economy, and representing our government and the American people to Israel's government, parliament, and people. The U.S. ambassador also plays a vital role in opening up U.S. embassy doors to all groups, regardless of their politics or views. The ambassador will, will help uh, chart a, a, the U.S. response to countering Israel's isolation in international organizations, as Senator Graham pointed out, and effectively counter the BDS movement, which threatens the legitimacy of Israel and fosters anti-Semitism. Given the breadth and depth and complexity of the issues included in the portfolio of the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Mr. Friedman, I have questions about your preparedness for this important post. I am uncertain of how you will represent all Americans to all Israelis and whether you are committed to a longstanding U.S. policy for a two-state solution. Of the last 10 ambassadors to Israel across Republican and Democratic administrations, all 10 had prior U.S. government experience. Nine had prior professional experience in the Middle East, and eight had already served at least once as a U.S. ambassador to other countries. I do not question that your background as a bankruptcy lawyer has enabled you to develop skills navigating complex multilateral negotiations, but serving as a top diplomat to one of the most important allies in the regions beset by violent conflict, armed militant, and terrorist groups, and unstable autocrats requires a distinct set of skills and a distinct temperament. Frankly, the language you have regularly used against those who disagree with your views has me concerned about your preparedness to enter the world of diplomacy. So I will follow Senator Lieberman's advice and ask directly that you respond to these types of concerns. For the record, it is important to note the examples. Reviving Holocaust terms to equate J Street supporters with Nazi collaborators are questioning their commitment and love for Israel, calling the anti-defamation link morons, stating that liberal Jews suffer from a cognizant dis disconnect in identifying good and evil. And Mr. Freeman, I could mention your specific comments about President Obama or your specific comments about members of the United States Senate, including uh, the Democratic leader. And I would ask that you respond to that. These are written comments, cases where you had the opportunity to consider what you were saying to make judicious edicts, if you so desired, you chose otherwise. I hope you will also offer a clear and unequivocal rejection of these inflammatory accusations as part of your testimony here today, and also reassure us that you are capable of acting with the discipline, tact, wisdom, and diplomacy that serving as a U.S. ambassador requires. I am also concerned that your views on the two-state solution constitutes an unprecedented break with longstanding U.S. policy. Republican and Democratic administrations alike have promoted two states living side by side in peace and security, a democratic Israel, Jewish state, and a demilitarized Palestinian state. Written excerpts from your writings on this topic include your August 2, 2016 piece in the Israeli publication entitled, End the Two-State Narrative where you go on to call it a damaging anachronism, an illustrious solution in search of a non-existent problem. In that same piece, you state that the Palestinians recognize the advantage of integration into Israel society. 
I don't see how Israel can remain democratic and Jewish in a one-state solution. Demographics are unambiguous in this regard. I still have not heard one realistic solution to what happens to Hamas in Gaza in a one-state solution. I hope you'll be crystal clear on what your views are in regards to a realistic, sustainable solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Finally, your record of financial and rhetoric support for the settlements far outside the blocks, presumed to join Israel with mutually agreed land swaps as part of a two-state solution are troubling. The webpage for the gala dinner last year in New York in support of Beth Al settlement explicitly states that it is creating facts on the ground and notes a new initiative to train students with the tools successfully delegitimating the notion of a two-state solution. In an August 2015 piece you wrote, some 10 years ago, the state of Israel went through an extraordinary internal angst in compelling the evacuation of 8,000 brave Jewish souls in the relatively remote Gaza Strip. Does anyone really think that Israel has the political will to do the same to, too many, to, to many hundreds of thousands of residents of Judea and Samaria? These are not people who live on the fringes of Israeli society. They are completely integrated in Israel's commerce and culture and serve in the most elite units of the Israeli army. They will never be forced to leave their beautiful homes. Even President Trump last week said in an interview to an Israeli newspaper, settlements don't help the process. There is so much land left, and every time you take land for settlements, there's less land left. So again, Mr. Friedman, I hope you will clarify your views on the settlements, on the two-state solution, and the comments that you've made about my colleagues and others uh, during the course of this hearing. My commitment to Israel is unyielding. I believe that it is a critical relationship for the United States, and I've worked in many decades in public service to assure that there is a strong, stable, and mutually beneficial relationship between our countries. Likewise, I am confident of the commitment and support of my colleagues on the committee, even though we may have the, the different views uh, and conflicting views as to how best to carry out that commitment. So in that spirit, Mr. Freeman, I look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Friedman. Uh, we thank you for your willingness to serve. Uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. If you would consider summarizing your views in about uh, five minutes or so, uh, we look forward to robust questioning. Again, thank you for being here. And by the way, you're welcome to introduce your, your wonderful family who happens to be with you today. Hope you will, as a matter of fact. Thank you. Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I appreciate very much the opportunity to appear before you today. It's a great privilege to address this committee, which has done so much to advance America's interests around the world. Mr. Friedman also said that Palestinian refugees don't have a claim to the land, don't have a connection to Palestine, when in fact they do. Mr. Friedman, I'm right here. Mr. Friedman, my grandfather was exiled, was kicked out by the state of Israel, Mr. Friedman, and I'm right here, Mr. It's a great privilege to address this committee, which has done so much to advance America's interests around the world, and which, together with the entire United States Congress, has for generations maintained unwavering support on a bipartisan basis for the State of Israel. I am grateful to the President of the United States for nominating me to the post of Ambassador to Israel, 
and I'm humbled by the trust and the confidence that he has placed in me to strengthen the unbreakable bond between our country and Israel and to advance the cause of peace within the region. Uh, I'd like to thank Senator Graham and Senator Lieberman for their kind words of introduction and for their leadership on so many critical matters that affect our nation. I'd like to introduce my family members who are here today and thank them for their support and encouragement. My beautiful bride of 36 years, Tammy, and my children, Daniel, Aliza, and her husband, Eli, and Talia. Watching at home are Daniel's wife, Jana, my son, Jacob, and his wife, Danielle, who just had a baby boy, our daughter, Katie, and our seven beautiful grandchildren. Whatever success I have achieved in life would have been unthinkable without their love and support, especially that of my dear wife. I'd also like to wish good luck to my youngest child, Katie, who is litigating her first mock trial today in her high school trial advocacy program. I could not continue without reflecting upon my father, Rabbi Morris Friedman, who passed away some 12 years ago. He was my mentor, my hero, and my closest friend. The child of poor immigrants, my father was a great patriot who felt an enormous debt of gratitude to our beloved country for its essential goodness in giving his parents and so many others the enormous opportunities embedded in United States citizenship. In 1948, my father and my mother sat nervously at their radio, listening to the session of the United Nations that was then held in Queens, New York. And they rejoiced as the United States became the first nation to recognize the nascent state of Israel. My father cared deeply for Americans of all religious and political stripes. He marched in the civil rights movement. He convened prayer vigils to mourn the assassination of President Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King. And in the 70s, he handcuffed himself on numerous occasions to the Soviet mission to protest the Kremlin's refusal to allow Soviet Jews to emigrate. In October 1984, my father. In October 1984, my father had the privilege to host President Ronald Reagan for lunch in our home on Long Island with my mother doing the cooking and to later introduce him as he addressed our synagogue. Those were dark days at the United Nations for the State of Israel. It operated under the cloud of a General Assembly resolution that equated Zionism with racism. President Reagan, in his remarks to my father's congregation, was unambiguous. He said, and I quote, if Israel is ever forced to walk out of the United Nations, America and Israel will walk out together. It was an unforgettable moment and a watershed in U.S. relations. Seven years later, with the overwhelming bipartisan support from this body, America led the effort to repeal the infamous U.N. resolution. I'd like to thank Senator Cardin, who was serving in the House at that time, for his leadership in advocating for that effort and to think that my father played a small role in setting that whole process in motion is of great pride to my family. My father's values are my values. I could never replicate the contributions he made. I have certainly never been forced or asked to sacrifice in the same manner of that great generation. But I have sought meaning and fulfillment in life through my faith, my incredible family, and through various philanthropic endeavors. As you know, our nation's support for Israel is longstanding, steadfast, and strongly in our national interests. 
If I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed by the Senate, I will dedicate my mission to two things, advancing the national interests of the United States and strengthening its relationship with Israel and working tirelessly to bring peace and stability to the region. I will bring to this mission a deep understanding of Israel's history, culture, geography, and commerce, developed over a lifetime of study and more than 50 visits to the State of Israel. I will bring to this mission a close relationship with the President and a demonstrated ability to carry out his directions and strategies. And finally, I will bring a negotiating skill developed over many years to resolve multilateral disputes, often extraordinarily contentious. I will bring an unshakable commitment to this country, an ability to positively engage with the Israelis and a working command of the Hebrew language. I approach this with unbridled optimism and excitement. Some of the language that I used during the highly charged presidential campaign that ended last November has come in for criticism, and rightfully so. While I maintain profound differences of opinion with some of my critics, I regret the use of such language. I want to assure you that I understand the critical difference between the partisan rhetoric of a political contest and a diplomatic mission. Partisan rhetoric is not appropriate in achieving diplomatic progress, especially in a sensitive and strife-torn region like the Middle East. From my perspective, the inflammatory rhetoric that accompanied the presidential campaign is entirely over, and if I am confirmed, you should expect my comments to be respectful and measured. If confirmed, I will also faithfully observe yeah. the Confirmed by the Senate, I also intend to faithfully observe the directions given me by the President and the Secretary of State without regard to my personal opinions. I'd like to thank this committee for permitting me to appear today. I look forward to answering all of your questions. And if I am confirmed, I look forward to working with each and every one of you to enhance our relationship with the State of Israel. Thank you. Thank you for those comments. Uh, state of play, the vote has not yet gone off, and uh, we'll just continue with questions. So we'll begin questioning with uh, Senator Cardin, and if Senator Barrasso comes back, he's next. If not, it'll be Senator Risch. And, uh... Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Freeman, you and I have something very much in common. Uh, our parents were proud Zionists, worked everything they could in order to, to strengthen uh, the support for the State of Israel and the values that it stood for and stands for. 
But my parents also taught me that words have consequences. And my father, who, who uh, a blessed memory, was circuit court judge, uh, served as president of our synagogue, which he told me was the toughest position he ever held, uh, and told, taught me how to just respect different views and to do that in an effective way. So I am having difficulty understanding the language that you've used. You have sort of justified that in your comments here that it was part of a campaign. These were written statements. But in some cases, they go back before the campaign. Uh, I'm specifically referring to your comments uh, about the Democratic leader in the Senate and, and his motivation in regards to the Iran nuclear agreement and how he came about his decision making during that very difficult time. As a person who struggled with that decision, I know the deliberations that Senator Schumer went through. I know the deliberations that I went through and all members went through. It was a tough decision. So I'm having difficulty understanding your use of, that, of, of those descriptions and whether you really can be a diplomat. Because a diplomat has to choose every word that he or she uses. So why should I believe that these were just emotional expressions and that you now understand the difference between that role and that as a diplomat? Well, Senator, um, I provided some context for my remarks, but that was not in the nature of an excuse. There, there is no excuse. Um, I will, uh, if, 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 you, uh, if you want me to rationalize it or, or justify it, uh, I cannot. These were hurtful words, and, um, and I deeply regret them. Uh, they're not reflective of my nature or my character. And um, I will tell you that for many, many years, I have been involved in some of the most difficult, contentious, highly personal disputes uh, that one can imagine, albeit in a commercial context. And um, I've dealt with judges, uh, uh, government officials, and uh, over a, a lengthy period, no one has ever uh, found me to be unable to control my temperament or my rhetoric. Um, the Iran deal was something I felt passionately about. I was concerned that the United States was embarking up upon a deal that presented an existential risk to Israel uh, and potentially a significant risk to our great country as well. Um, I, don't, I didn't have access to all the classified information that the members of the Senate have, but from my perspective as a private citizen, I felt it was important to speak out, and I did so, uh, again, in a private manner. Those are my private opinions. Uh, they'll, be left, they'll be left in New York if I'm privileged enough to travel to the State of Israel for this mission. So just to put this in context, and then I'm going to move on to the, to the second issue I want to talk about. You were accusing the Democratic leader of validating the worst appeasements of terrorism since Munich. Uh, those words just are beyond hurtful. They're, Senator Schumer is one of the champions on these causes. Anyway, let me move on to the two-state solution. I, uh, we had a chance to talk in my office. We know the demographics. 
We also understand the geographical area of a viable Palestinian state. We know, we don't know exactly where those lines will be, but we have an idea. We both agree that that must be negotiated directly between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and no third party can dictate those terms. We're in total agreement that that will be a decision made by the Israelis and the Palestinians. But we also know the geographical areas that are likely to be part of those discussions. And settlements in areas that are outside of that generally accepted area has been perceived by America as being less than helpful in the debate. You, of course, have been involved in supporting settlements and in conversations that seem to imply that the two-state solution is no longer a viable option. What do you mean by that? Senator, if the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians were able through direct negotiations to achieve a two-state solution uh, along parameters agreeable to them, uh, and, and the Prime Minister of Israel yesterday outlined some of them, I would be uh, delighted. Uh, I would be delighted to see uh, peace come to this region where people have suffered on both sides for so long. Um, I have expressed my skepticism about the two-state solution solely on the basis of what I've perceived as an unwillingness on the part of the Palestinians to renounce terror and accept Israel as a Jewish state. Um, I think that, in my view, is a foundational, uh, a foundational problem. Uh, but I think it can be remedied, and I hope it is. I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement. The, the prerequisite of a two-state solution is that there is a Jewish state that is recognized by its neighbor, and no longer can there be the the cry that it's not legitimate. I mean, I, th that's a, I think we all agree on that. I, I, I'm not sure that's responsive to the concerns that I have. Well, well Senator, again, I, I would be delighted if a two-state solution could be achieved. The two-state solution, as you know, began to take form in 1993 with the Oslo Accords. One of the, one of the primary commitments of those accords was Chairman, Chairman Arafat's commitment to end incitement and to begin to educate uh, his people uh, to stop hatred, and, and, and we haven't made progress since then. And, and in the aftermath of Oslo, terrorism has increased fourfold since before Oslo. My only comments about it, I don't think you and I disagree. I think that we both support Israel, we both love this country, and we both want peace. And I frankly, I think that there's more that uh, we have in common that divides us. I, I do want to see peace in the region, and I do believe that a two-state solution, if it could be achieved, would bring tremendous uh, benefits to both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think because of the type of hearing I see this developing into, I'm going to, it'll be, we'll have seven minutes on the clock for a round, and I know you just took seven, so I'll let you. Um, so, uh, Bert, Bertie, if you would uh, understand that, so that's why I waited. But uh, put seven minutes on the clock, if you will, Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Friedman, thank you for your willingness to take on what's obviously going to be a, a difficult uh, struggle, as it always has been in recent years. Um, le let me uh, try to drill down a little bit in, in one of the concerns that I have. All of us sit and think about how, if there is indeed a solution, if, if a solution's even possible, how, you, how do you get there? And the, the, the problem I see... Uh, or one of, one of the many, many problems that I see, is kind of uh, foundational to the whole thing, and that is who you're negotiating with. 
I mean, it seems to me that, uh, that the Palestinian Authority and Hamas are deeply divided and deeply polarized. Uh, and how do, you, how do you accomplish that when you're, when you're supposed to be dealing with a, a single entity that can make a deal that, uh, that everybody is willing to live with? Because the deal's not going to work unless unless the majority, the vast majority of the people on each side are in agreement and, and committed to make it work. So how, what, are your th what are your thoughts on that? I, I understand it's getting a little bit in the weeds, but to me it's, it's, it's really foundational uh, to how you get to, to, the, to the end. Senator, I think you've identified the, the, the gating problem, uh, and it's an extraordinary challenge. And if, I think if we didn't have that problem, this, this would have been settled already. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They seek the destruction of the state of Israel, uh, the entire state of Israel. Their issues are not settlements. Their issues are the existence of Israel. They control the Gaza Strip, and I don't know who would control the West Bank if there were elections tomorrow. Um, I think that from, I, I don't have a good answer to making peace with an entity controlled by Hamas, I do believe that the future uh, needs to begin with greater efforts to empower and to some extent to create a Palestinian middle class. Um, Gaza is ungovernable. It has a 30% or higher unemployment rate. Uh, until that changes, I don't think we will be able to uproot Hamas from the Gaza Strip. And so I am, my approach uh, has been, and if, if asked by the president, it's, I'm not here to make policy, but if asked by the president, I would recommend uh, deepening the efforts uh, along with our allies in the Gulf and Israel's neighbors to work harder on empowering the economic opportunities for the Palestinian people who I believe are being held hostage by, um, by a ruthless regime. You know, I appreciate that, and, and that observation seems to be uh, very legitimate in that uh, uh, the, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank seem like uh, worlds apart as far as economic opportunity and, and for that matter, as far as uh, uh, just culture. And I, again, I don't know how you get those, the, how you bring those two together to uh, to get where you need to be. But uh, I wish you well in that, and uh, I think we'll uh, we'll all be watching uh, to see how uh, how that works out. But it's and those that may very well be out of everyone's control except the Palestinians themselves. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I think what we'll do is uh, instead of having a roving, I know people want to hear the answers to these questions. Um, we're going to recess. We have a vote, and unfortunately, there's a 10-minute debate period in between, and then another vote. If everybody would just come back promptly after the second vote, so you may want to come back into the back, Mr. Friedman, or do whatever. But we're going to recess until that time. Thank you.
come to Vegas? Stuff that actually looked like you know what you're talking about. And 
We are ready to restart. Please have your seats, please. In order to move on, uh, first of all, we're back in session, and uh, in order to move on with it, uh, Senator Udall, if you'd, since you're ready, we'll move on to you, and thank you. Thank, th thank you very much, and I, I, I appreciate the hearing, and, and uh, first of all, I'd like to just put in the record the letter from the uh, five ambassadors, if it hasn't already been put in the record, bipartisan group of ambassadors that uh, say that uh, Mr. Friedman's unfit to be ambassador, so I would, Without objection. I would do that. And, and I'm going to agree with much of what they said. I'm, I'm strongly opposed to this nominee. I believe Secretary Tillerson and President Trump should recognize that Mr. Friedman is completely unfit for this or any other diplomatic office and withdraw him immediately. If not, I strongly recommend that this committee not recommend him for confirmation. Mr. Friedman does not represent American values in the region. That is evident from his past statements, and they are not random, off-the-cuff remarks. Much of his offensive, inflammatory, and insulting rhetoric has been reported in the newspapers and repeated over and over. He has called for an arbitrary ban on many Muslims entering the country. Mr. Friedman has stated that Muslims should submit Internet and telecommunications activity for inspection. And he has said, and I quote, no need to worry about the First Amendment. And he's also said the rights of free speech do not apply to Muslims attempting to enter our country. Mr. Chairman and colleagues, just last week, the Republican majority chose to censure a colleague under Senate Rule 19 for imputing bad conduct to a senator. Well, if we truly care whether senators are maligned, we should look at Mr. Friedman's words, which I think have been mentioned earlier by Mr. Cardin and I agree with him in, term, in his opening talking about him rejecting these comments, but he has insulted and denigrated members of the Senate, including Senator Schumer and Senator Franken. Mr. Friedman said, and I quote, no matter how we ultimately vote, no matter how he ultimately votes, by making his decision such a close call, which is plainly should not be, Schumer is violating the worst is validating the worst appeasement of terrorism since Munich, end quote. When the Anti-Defamation League and Senator Franken criticized the Trump campaign ad as being anti-Semitic, he said, and I quote, I don't see how anybody can take the Anti-Defamation League seriously going forward. 
This is what happens when people take these insane arguments to their logical extension. They lose all credibility, and frankly, they sound like morons, end quote. He has slandered President Obama and his administration, and I quote, the blatant anti-Semitism emanating from our president and his sycophantic minions is palpable and very disturbing, end quote. He's denigrated Secretary Clinton's personal views on Israel, and I quote, I don't think she particularly likes Israel, end quote. Responded, responding to President Obama and Secretary Kerry's condemnations of violence in Israel, he said, and I quote, engaging in blatant anti-Semitism, end quote. I think we can all detect a pattern here. Anyone who disagrees with his extreme views or approach to Israel is an anti-Semite. For the record, Mr. Friedman has also said that liberal Jews, and I quote, suffer a cognitive disconnect in identifying good and evil, end quote. By these words, he disrespects many in the Jewish community, including my home state of New Mexico, which I've had many calls from New Mexico urging that we reject this nomination. Such divisive and hateful comments against anyone who disagree with him on un, or is unbecoming of an ambassador to any country. It's clear that Mr. Friedman's appointment would represent a profound break with decades of U.S. foreign policy supporting a two-state solution and resisting illegal settlements that make such a solution more remote. President Reagan said that settlement activity was, and I quote, no way necessary for the security of Israel and only diminishes the confidence of Arabs that a final outcome can be freely and fairly negotiated, end quote. I wonder were President Reagan here today, would Mr. Friedman label him anti-Semitic? Mr. Friedman is profoundly unfit to lead members of the State Department. He accuses many of them of being, quote, over a hundred years of anti-Semitism, end quote. I say this as a friend of Israel who has always supported military aid to defend her borders. If we confirm him, we are running a dangerous risk that Mr. Friedman will inflame a volatile situation and inflame other foreign governments in the region. We need a steady hand in the Middle East, not a bomb thrower in a position of high power and responsibility. One final note, sometimes Mr. Friedman does not stop at merely name-calling those who disagree with him as anti-Semitic. He wrote in an article in 2015, and I quote here, J Street supporters are far worse than capos, Jews who turned in their fellow Jews in the Nazi death camps. They are just smug advocates of Israeli, is Israel's destruction delivered from the comfort of their secure American sofas. It's hard to imagine anyone worse, end quote. That statement in a written article, not in off-the-cuff remarks, demonstrates his complete and total unfitness for this extremely important office. Mr. Chairman, I would like to enter all the source documents for all of these quotes into the official hearing record. Without objection. Thank you. If the majority wants to jam through all of the President's, President Trump's diplomatic nominees, they probably can. But I urge them to caucus in private and talk to the President's team to see if we can move in a different direction. <laughs> Mr. Friedman, have you ever issued a public 
apology for any of your insulting comments regarding others' views on Israel and Middle Eastern issues, and will you today reject those comments here? Could you turn on your microphone, please, sir? Uh, yes, Senator, I, I have and will continue to reject the inflammatory comments. I have reached out over the last several months to a number of people who have uh, been hurt by the things I've said or have communicated to me that they would like to speak with me. It includes the head of the uh, Union of American Reform Rabbis. It includes members of the New York Board of Rabbis. It includes a personal meeting with Senator Franken. It includes uh, a telephone call followed up by emails with Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League. Um, in at least the latter two cases, the apologies were fully accepted and I expect um, ongoing, uh, on an ongoing basis that those relationships and others uh, will be inclusive and respectful. Now, I also would like to ask, I know my time's out, uh, and I, I will submit questions for the record, but you've invested massively in the settlement movement, and so I would like you for the record to answer in writing whether you've separated your financial interest from that of uh, Bet L and all other settlements you have an interest in and have done so. And I appreciate very much the chairman's courtesies in allowing me to run over a little bit. Thank you. Absolutely. I don't know if that's a yes or no answer, so I don't know if you want to. I'll be happy to submit uh, answers to all of your questions, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to hear you respond to some of those allegations. And uh, you use the word reject. I think you're, you regret, perhaps, also some of those comments, it sounds like. Um, not to put words in your mouth, but that's. I do. I do, Senator. That's, that's what I sense from today, including your prepared remarks. Uh, you could have no better advocate than Joe Lieberman. And he does have enormous respect on both sides of the aisle. And he knows you as a friend and as a colleague. And uh, so um, you're smart to have brought him with you today. Thank you. Uh, Graham, I won't talk about. <laughs> Just kidding. He's fine, too. But um, I, I, I do have concerns. You know, this is not a typical ambassadorship. I mean, it's, a, it's uh, having been to Israel a number of times and met with our ambassador there. Let's be frank, in, in a lot of countries of the world, it doesn't matter that much who the ambassador is. The State Department has taken a bigger and bigger role over the last uh, several decades in foreign policy, and, and uh, even the White House uh, you know, plays a, a big role in certain countries. But this is, a, this is a really important one. And that person on the ground developing those relationships, um, I think, is, is critical for two reasons. One, we do have a lot of divergent points of view here. As you can see, uh, we all are very supportive of Israel. I think it's fair to say. I hope that's true. Uh, but there are different approaches to the policy issues. So an ambassador has to be able to bring all these different points of view together and, and provide counsel to our president and to our secretary of state and others, national security advisor. Um, you'll get a lot of visitors, uh, assuming you're confirmed uh, from this body, but also from around the world. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very important role in terms of taking all these different points of view and so one of my questions for you um, is, do you think you're capable of doing that? You know, listening to all points of view and being, in some respects, a broker you know, of those points of view to describe to, to, to our administration as to the best approach forward. Uh, Senator, uh, thank you. And, and yes, I, I do think I can do that. I, um, I think that 
bipartisanship has always been the hallmark of America's support for Israel. And um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, as I've uh, commented occasionally to several of the senators I've had the privilege to meet, uh, I want to do everything I can to work with the members of Congress to build upon what is, I think, much more that unites us than divides us on the state of Israel. There are obviously divergent views, and I think all those views need to be considered, uh, and I think they're all made in good faith. Uh, and if I am confirmed, it will be a, a high priority of mine to synthesize and to the extent harmonize the views of, of the Congress, uh, and also to uh, do the same in Israel, because uh, as uh, divided as the uh, United States is, the state of Israel is just as divided, and their, um, their governing system is, is very challenging. Mr. Friedman, let me, let me continue. The, the second role that I was going to mention is the one that you're sort of suggesting now, which is my sense is the ambassador to Israel typically has been someone who has a personal relationship with the leadership there, and not just the prime minister, uh, but also members of the cabinet and members of the opposition parties, uh, because as you say, it's pretty... Uh, diverse and sometimes a little chaotic in their parliament, but you have to have those relationships. Uh, and so my question to you uh, is, do you think you can be effective there? And specifically, how would you go about representing the United States of America? Would you be interested in more public comments? Some ambassadors have taken that route. Uh, or would this be more private conversations? And do you feel as though you have relationships in the country uh, beyond uh, the coalition government beyond the existing um, parties that are in, in power to be able to perform that role? Well, Senator, on, 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 uh, on the issue of uh, public comments or private, I happen to believe that with regard to the state of Israel, uh, discretion is incredibly important, and I think um, public comments can be uh, self-defeating. Uh, 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 as you saw yesterday, uh, people hang on every word uh, that is issued uh, on this subject, um, whether or not the speaker intended that or not. And I think you have to be careful. I think the, if there's progress to be made in the Middle East in the peace process, it's through uh, private diplomacy, uh, through forging agreements and coalitions and common interests behind the scenes. Um, and I, th I, think that's, I think that's important. I do understand well the... Uh, the center, the left, and the right of the Israeli Knesset. Uh, they're all good people. Um, many of them have sacrificed. I think they've all sacrificed for their country. Um, many of them have, have paid the ultimate sacrifice through the loss of loved ones for their country. You know, people on the left who have lost their families uh, uh, can c continue to maintain positions on the left with, and, and, they, and they're entitled to do so, and they should do so. So. Um, it's hard to bring that together, but ultimately, this is a Rubik's Cube, and there's a lot of pieces that have to come together. Um, and I, I do think I, I, I know the issues, I know the players, and I, um, and I, I do think I have worked in, in, in a, albeit much, much less uh, complicated capacity, but I've worked to develop a skill set that I think will be complementary to that task. In your law practice? Yes. Yeah. Um, one specific issue that I, I want to raise is, is BDS, boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. And I think the ambassador to Israel will have to be someone who is um, a spokesperson for 
the U.S. point of view on this, and we'll have the ability, I hope, to be able to communicate to the rest of the world what it, what it means, for instance, to have uh, sanctions or boycotts with regard to the West Bank. What would that mean in terms of Israel? What does it mean in terms of the Palestinians? Sure. Um, Golan's the other uh, issue that's now, as you know, become part of BDS in, in some forums. So what are your views on BDS? Ben Cardin and I got legislation passed. We're looking at additional legislation. The Congress is on record now on this issue. We want to do more. But just talk to us a little how you think as an ambassador to Israel, you can be an effective communicator on the, on the BDS issue and pushing back, combating this, uh, what is, I think, a, a global effort now that needs uh, strong support from the United States to combat it. Well, I will be a, I will be a um, fierce advocate against the BDS movement. Uh, as I understand, Ambassador Haley has committed to do as well. Um, I look at the, uh, the example of SodaStream. I don't know if you're familiar with that company, but SodaStream was, a, is a, is a, was an extraordinarily successful company that uh, employed hundreds of Palestinians and hundreds of Israelis and paid them all the same wages and gave them the same benefits. And it was a paradigm of Israelis and Palestinians working together. And because SodaStream happened to be on the wrong side of the green line, they were boycotted throughout the world and had to move, so they moved to the Negev and Palestinians lost their jobs. This is an entirely self-defeating prospect, not only for Israel, but for the Palestinians as well. My time has expired. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Friedman, and welcome. Uh, I just want to talk about one thing, and that was the press conference yesterday between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump. U.S. policy since Resolution 181 in 1947 has been to support, and this is in the words of the resolution itself, a partition of the area previously known as Palestine into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. And the idea of two states has been the cornerstone of American foreign policy and reaffirmed often by the U.S., Palestinians, and Israel since the Oslo Accords in 1993 and 1995. Yesterday, President Trump signaled potentially a new direction uh, and I just want to quote him, and I'm just going to, I really want to talk to you about exactly what he said, not editorializing about it, just what he said. Quote, I'm looking at two state and one state formulations. I like the one that both parties like. I'm very happy with the one both parties like. I can live with either one. As I read that, I assume that both parties mean Israel and Palestine or Israelis and Palestinians more broadly. Is that how you understood that comment? Yes, and I, I watched that uh from my iPhone with keen interest. I wasn't involved in the, uh, in the meeting with the Prime Minister or the lead up to it or the follow up. So I'm relying upon what I saw as well as you. But yes, I, I heard it that way. It was whatever the Palestinians and the Israelis agree upon. And I think this is something that would get near unanimous view up here. Um, US policy should be to support a resolution that both parties like. But if either or both parties don't accept it, then the U.S. should not support that policy. Is that fair? Well, I, I, I couldn't speculate on the, on the, on the policy that, that might not gain uh, you know, you know, bilateral support. Um, certainly, it's been the policy of this country for generations to foster direct negotiations and to help bring those to a conclusion. Um, but would you agree with the general thrust of the president's statement that I like the one that both parties like? Certainly. Regarding a two-state solution, Israel would not like, would not accept any formulation where a neighboring Palestine refused to recognize it as the Jewish state contemplated by Resolution 181. Is that fair to say? I think so. 
and Israel would not like any formulation where a neighboring Palestine refused to treat it peacefully and live with it as a peaceful neighbor. you agree with that? Yes. So based on the president's statement, if Israel didn't like a two-state proposal for one of those two reasons, then the U.S. could not support it. Based on this, I support something that both sides like. Again, that the U.S. could not support, um, I, I, think, I think I'd have to know more about what exactly the U.S. was being presented with. But you wouldn't expect um, the U.S. to support a two-state deal where there was not a pledge to recognize Israel's right to exist or Israel's security. No, Israel is one of our strongest allies, right. and I think we owe it no less. So let me now switch over to the one-state formulation. Palestinians wouldn't like any one-state solution where they would be evacuated or forced to lose their land, would they? I wouldn't think so. And Palestinians wouldn't like any one-state solution unless they had full and equal legal rights in such a state, correct? I don't think anyone would ever support uh, a state where different classes of citizens had separate rights. And I think you and I agree on that. In fact, we talked in my office yesterday, not only would the U.S. not be able to accept a situation where people were consigned to a second-class status, but from my you know, somewhat limited experience in Israel and your dramatically greater experience, the, the Israelis I know, I do not believe the majority of them would accept a one-state solution where Palestinians were consigned to a second-class legal status. I don't know Israelis even on the right who even on the far right, uh, who would support that. It's, it's an untenable and immoral construct. So based on the president's formulation yesterday, a one-state solution would only be acceptable if Palestinians accepted it, and Palestinians aren't going to accept it if they're treated as second-class citizens in that one-state formulation. I agree. So now let's just, just let me summarize. Um, based on the president's theory and his words that we can't support any formulation uh, we can support any formulation that makes both sides happy. The U.S. could never accept, talking about U.S. policy, now not Israeli or Palestinian policy, the U.S. could never support a two-state solution if it did not require full recognition of Israel as the Jewish state contemplated by the resolution in 1947 and a commitment to live in peace with Israel. We could never support such a policy, correct? Correct. And the U.S. could never support a one-state solution, or indeed any solution, where Palestinians are deprived of full and equal legal rights that are accorded to any other citizen, correct? I think so. I don't have any other questions, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Friedman, thank you for your willingness to serve. Thank you. Um, having done an awful lot of negotiating myself, you have to sit down at a negotiating table with people negotiating good faith. And I think the fundamental problem here is that you have the other side, Palestinians, just refusing to acknowledge Israel's right to, to exist. Isn't that basically the fundamental problem here? It's been the gating problem for a generation. I want to talk a little bit about, you you'd mentioned in your testimony that Palestinians are, are being held hostage. Uh, in their education system for decades, they've been teaching pretty vile things about Israelis and Jews, correct? Yes, they have. In Palestinian law, they actually are rewarding terrorists, correct? And it's an, it's an increasing incentive based on the number of people a terrorist have murdered. Is that exactly not correct? Exactly true. So is it really true that a majority of Palestinians are being held hostage and would really like a peaceful coexistence with the Israeli state? I, I believe the majority of Palestinians would like peaceful coexistence. Okay, I, I hope that's true. 
Um, to what extent should America continue to provide foreign aid to the Palestinian Authority when they are teaching their young children the vile things they teach, when they are incentivizing Palestinian terrorists to continue to, to murder Jews? I think it's uh, an important question for, uh, for Congress to consider. Um, we cannot continue to incentivize this behavior. It's entirely self-defeating to the Palestinians, to Israel, to the entire world. And uh, I understand Congress is looking at this, and I certainly applaud that effort. Do you know what the new administration's position is going to be on that? Are we going to continue to provide that foreign aid unless, uh, or are we going to condition foreign aid on uh, certainly they're not teaching these things, not providing those types of incentives? I, I don't know if the administration has formed a specific position on it, but I would be delighted to, to find out and get back to you, Senator. In 1981, uh, in the Golan Heights, I think Israel recognized that it just was not working to have different uh, rules of law apply, kind of to Senator Kane's question here. Uh, for those Syrian citizens, the Golan Heights, they needed some certainty, so Israel decided to take the measure to apply Israeli law in the Golan Heights. Can you speak a little bit to what happened there and what the effect has been? Well, I, th I think the Golan Heights is an is a incredibly important strategic uh, area for Israel. One can only imagine uh, what Israel would be, how Israel would be suffering now if it didn't have the Golan Heights, and the Golan Heights were occupied by ISIS. Um, the Golan Heights is, uh, is 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 not an area of conflict. Uh, it, it, there may, I mean, I'm not saying there may not there may be some conflicts, but my experience, uh, I think, I think it worked out quite well. I don't want to speak for Syrians living in the Golan Heights, but I think if I were a Syrian, I'd rather be living in the Golan Heights right now than, let's say, Aleppo. I'm sure that's true. One of the questions I've asked uh, some European representatives is if you, they had to move their family in the Middle East, could choose any country in the Middle East, where would they choose to locate their family? I can tell you my answer on that. I'd, I'd choose Israel. Um, that's my final question. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Senator Kynes. Uh, well, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, for holding this important uh, confirmation hearing. And thank you, Mr. Friedman, uh, for your willingness to serve uh, the U.S. government and the American people. Uh, we had a, a constructive, um, pointed, but constructive, I thought, conversation yesterday. And I'm going to make an opening statement and then ask a few questions. Um, you are well known uh, to the Delaware Bar, uh, and I'll stipulate for the record at the outset uh, that your legal skills are widely and well-respected. And as many of my colleagues have asked uh, questions around this, that's really not the central concern uh, raised by former ambassadors raised in this hearing. Uh, it's not whether you are skilled at reaching complex legal resolutions, but whether um, your intemperate previous statements um, should suggest to us that in a unique circumstance with a president um, unskilled uh, in diplomacy and inclined towards inflammatory tweets, um, that your temperament is appropriate for this critically important post. So that's sort of, I think, our central uh, question today. Um, let me first say that one of my core concerns, as we discussed, is that the, the vital alliance between the United States and Israel um, shouldn't be sacrificed on the altar of partisan politics. And as a strong supporter of Israel, I've long believed um, that bipartisanship in support of Israel advances our nation's interest, Israel's interests, and is the best path towards peace in the world. Uh, but I'm gravely concerned that political forces in the United States and in Israel 
uh, are pulling officials um, away from a sensible middle ground and towards increasingly extreme positions on the left and right. And um, at a time of real division in both our nations, I think it's important um, that this Congress act in a way that reaffirms our bipartisan commitment to Israel. Um, we share a lot of interests. We have a great deal at stake. Um, Iran continues to threaten uh, Israel and American interests, uh, continues to destabilize the broader Middle East. Terrorist groups like ISIS, Hamas, and Hezbollah um, jeopardize the safety and security of uh, too many Americans, Israelis, and Arabs. Uh, and on these and many other issues, uh, Israel is a vital partner for the United States. Uh, much of the media coverage surrounding our relationship uh, focus, uh, focuses on shared challenges, uh, but recent successes uh, shouldn't go unnoticed. Uh, we discussed the 10-year MOU and the $38 billion of support um, that is the largest U.S. aid package ever and something for which I think President Obama um, deserves real credit. Um, Israeli officials with whom I meet regularly, including most recently Defense Minister Lieberman, um, say that our security cooperation intelligence sharing has never been stronger. Uh, but I worry that uh, with so much to gain by further cooperation, we are allowing um, actions and rhetoric uh, by hardliners, um, both uh, hardliners uh, in Israel and extremist Palestinians and statements by American politicians are driving us uh, further apart. So. Um, I think it is critical for there to be progress towards the long hoped for two-state solution for Palestinians to give an unequivocal recognition of Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state and to stop incitement um, and to direct their efforts towards sorting out their leadership and a plan for peace. But both sides have to consider the extent to which their words and actions contribute to these dangerous divisions that exist and continue uh, to grow. And I'm concerned that both sides need to listen to each other and we'll have to make real sacrifices to come together for a lasting peace. As we discussed, uh, demographic challenges facing Israel, in my view, are real and inevitable and put real pressures on the possibility um, of a Jewish democratic uh, state in the long run, um, but that's not our only uh, challenge. Um, I was concerned and disappointed that President Trump didn't explicitly support a two-state solution in his remarks uh, yesterday, something that for decades has been a fundamental pillar of bipartisan support for Israel. Uh, and as Senator Kane's uh, questioning in your responses a few minutes ago suggested, it, it is very difficult to articulate uh, a rational um, plan or um, a framework in which Palestinians would accept the sort of status required for a one-state solution to have any viability. Um, tomorrow I will be meeting uh, with a wide range of representatives of the Jewish community in my home state, um, and many of them have expressed concern given uh, previous statements you've made uh, that were intemperate or even insulting about whether as ambassador they would be welcome, valued uh, in uh, the U.S. Embassy um, in Israel. Um, and I am concerned that successful diplomacy means considering the consequences uh, of our rhetoric uh, and our behavior. So, Mr. Friedman, my, my central question really is, um, do you believe that in the role of ambassador, if confirmed, that you can act in a way that welcomes and celebrates uh, and validates the entire American um, pro-Israel and Jewish community um, in a way that really advances and sustains bipartisan support for Israel um, and in a way that steers the Trump administration and its agenda in the Middle East towards peace and away from division and partisanship. Uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. The, the answer, the short answer is yes. I. I um, think it's extraordinarily important, as we discussed yesterday, to uh, cause the issue of Israel to not be a political football. 
It never has been in the past. Uh, I, I am, I'm not, I'm certainly not uh, immune from criticism. I'm, I deserve the criticism and I've probably contributed to the problem. But we've all, I think, not, you know, many people in the, in the Jewish community, in the pro-Israel community, have become more, uh, more partisan, more separated, when at the end of the day, as I said earlier, they all support Israel, they all love this country, and they all want peace. And I think on those common footings, uh, it's important to reunite the pro-Israel community, and I will pledge to you that I will do everything I can to do that, and I will be inclusive and respectful of different views, and um, if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed, um, I will solicit and, and very seriously consider all the views uh, of people who in good faith want to strengthen the bond of the United States and Israel. I appreciate that. Um, I can't remember uh, a previous confirmation hearing for an ambassador that was interrupted repeatedly by protests. Um, clearly the campaign, the rhetoric of the campaign, um, the explosive environment in the Middle East, uh, the long-standing deep divisions uh, within Israel and in the region um, between Israelis and Palestinians and the regional um, adversaries uh, excites very intense passions. Um, and your statements have been intemperate and in many cases inappropriate and insulting, and that's been a subject of a great back and forth today. Let me ask if I might just two um, simple and concrete questions. Um, do you support or will you advocate for Israeli annexation of the West Bank or of land in the West Bank? I will not. Um, and do you believe a two-state solution is the most ideal path towards peace? I think it's the most uh, ideal. I think it's the path that has received the most thought and effort and consideration. Um, obviously, it's been tried for a long, long time, and we continue to wrestle with it. Smarter, much smarter people than me have tried to make progress and have failed, but it still remains, I believe, the best possibility uh, for peace in the region. Thank you, Mr. Friedman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Young. Mr. Friedman, I enjoyed our time together uh, in, in the office. We spent roughly an hour uh, talking about a, a full range of, of topics uh, pertaining to the U.S.-Israel relationship and, and more broadly, uh, lack of stability in the Middle East, our national security, and so on. I think I shared with you that I was a Marine Corps intelligence officer uh, in a prior life, and, and uh, my role was to serve with a unit that uh, flew around uh, drones, which were jointly developed uh, with uh, the state of Israel. I came to appreciate through that experience the importance of information sharing between our two countries. Uh, and also technology development. And uh, during my recent years as a member of Congress, I've also come to appreciate uh, the importance of military aid and arms sales. Israel and the U.S., uh, we both understand, confront common threat threats and we have shared ideals. And our military cooperation benefits both countries. So I just need public reassurance here that if confirmed as ambassador to Israel, would you do all you can to strengthen and deepen even further these military-to-military uh, -military, uh, efforts of, of cooperation between our countries? Senator, I would do all I could to strengthen that, whether on a strategic, technological, military uh, basis. Uh, it, has been a, it has been one of the great success stories of the relationship, and I think uh, very much benefiting both countries, and I'll do everything I can to, uh, to continue to improve and strengthen uh, that level of cooperation. Sure. Um, well, that's encouraging. Um, closer to home, 
we've been doing our part in the state of Indiana. The Indiana National Guard uh, has a longstanding relationship with the Israeli Defense Forces. Since at least 2010, our Guard has joined counterparts from Israel uh, in conducting combined training exercises. Our Guardsmen have regularly traveled to Israel from training. We've had training occur in, in Jerusalem, my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, uh, various other sites, the Muscatatuck Urban Training Center, which I know the IDF has found particularly helpful in preparing for their own uh, defense. Uh, in 2016, 65 Indiana National Guard soldiers participated in an operation known as United Front. It was a small unit exchange in, in Israel and conducted, uh, there, were, there were search and rescue operations uh, that were conducted there. Um, so I just urge you to continue to seek more of these opportunities uh, should you be confirmed uh, as ambassador, as I, as I uh, think is, is highly probable. I'd like to turn uh, briefly to um, the issue of, of the prospect of, of peace between the Palestinians and Israel. Do you believe an, an, accept, an acceptable agreement can be reached between the Israeli government and the Palestinians with Mahmoud Abbas at the helm? I would hope so, Senator, but I think the challenges are daunting. Um, I would point out that President Abbas refuses to accept Israel as a Jewish state. He's made that position quite clear. And uh, obviously, uh, as uh, Senator Johnson noted, the Palestinian Authority, while undoubtedly preferable to um, Hamas, and uh, to their credit, they've, they've engaged with Israel uh, very productively in security matters. but. Um, I, I still think they have positions that are inconsistent with, with lasting peace. So you've spoken to the challenges. Uh, do you see a successor with whom uh, we might be able to do business uh, uh, in, in, in uh, a much easier fashion? Uh, and maybe you could speak to uh, what is perceived by some to be a, a chaotic succession crisis occurring among Palestinian leaders. Well, there, there, is a, there appears to be a crisis um, almost by definition when you have a president who's exceeded his elected term by, I think it's seven or eight years now past his electoral mandate. Um, I think, I hope that there are, um, that there is a new generation of Palestinians that wants the same thing that everybody wants, which is a better life, uh, better opportunity for their children and to live in peace, I would be, it would just seem obvious to me that they're out there. And um, I know some Palestinians who are just like everybody else, and I would venture that the vast majority um, just want what, what everybody in the, in the world wants. And we have to do what we can to help foster, uh, both economically and politically, the development of that political class and an accompanying middle class uh, to try to draw out that type of leadership. Yesterday, as has been mentioned, Prime Minister Netanyahu laid out his, his two prerequisites for peace, uh, uh, recognition of a Jewish state uh, and uh, Israeli security control over the entire area west of the Jordan River. What is meant by security control over the entire area west of the Jordan River? Yeah, this, this has been, I think, the Prime Minister's position since 2009. It, it's really the analog to the naval control uh, with regard to Hamas. There is 
um, an extraordinary risk of weapons transfers in that area. Uh, if the Israelis didn't block the flow into Gaza, there would be even more horrific weapons than there are now. And I think the Prime Minister is concerned of a comparable flow of weapons uh, out of Jordan into, uh, into a Palestinian state. And I think that's, that's uh, as, as it's been explained to me, uh, an Israeli red line in terms of their own security. I'm not a security expert, but I understand that is so very important to the Prime this, Minister. This would likely require a, a perpetual presence of, of military forces on the ground in that area, though. Uh, I, I think it would, re I don't know how control would be achieved. Uh, again, I'm not an expert in that, but it would require some military control of the border, yes. Can you conceive of, of Palestinian leaders uh, who, who would be amenable uh, to this sort of situation? Um, not today. Um, I think that ultimately it would be in their interests as well to stop the flow of arms into a state that ideally should be demilitarized. So again, if calmer voices prevail, it should not be a deal breaker, but at this point, I think the answer is no. And lastly, what role might the Saudis and Emiratis play in, in uh, moving forward, helping to advance a potential agreement between the Palestinians and the Israelis? I think the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, and perhaps others, um, as we heard yesterday uh, in the Prime Minister's speech, seem to be far more amenable to um, productive discussions than in the past. Um, Israel does not seem to be the, the third rail that it once was with regard to these countries. And um, uh, from what I heard at the, at the uh, press conference yesterday, just based upon what I heard, it would seem to me that that's a very productive avenue for future discussions. Before turning to Senator Booker, I, I do want to, I think the Prime Minister has been really clear that when he talks about security in the West Bank, he's talking about ad infirmitum, perpetual, forever military presence. So I, I don't think he's been equivocal on that. Do you agree with that? Yes. Senator Booker. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for coming to my office yesterday. I really appreciated the respect you showed, uh, showed me, and I, and I appreciated our conversation, especially to see the depth of your love uh, for the state of Israel, something that I, I, I admire. Thank you. Um, I want to uh, zone in, though, on some of the things that have already been said and discussed. Um, but uh, I have grave concerns about the volume and breadth of your past statements, as we discussed a bit in, in my office. Uh, you stated in your testimony that you regret some of these particularly hurtful language that you used against not only President Obama, but also Secretary Clinton. Um, someone who spent her entire professional career uh, in service, two people who have spent uh, a considerable amount of their careers in service. Um, you, you talked about President Obama is engaging in blatant anti-Semitism uh, and other words. Uh, you don't believe President Obama is an anti-Semite, do you? Not, not at all, Senator. I don't believe that for a second. My, my only comment was I thought the language that the President used in with regard to the Iran deal when he accused um, wealthy donors of making common cause with the mullahs, I thought that was, at least I perceived it to be something which was a historically anti-Jewish canard that- Well, the, the comments you have about, the, about President Obama weren't just about that incident. You said it's blatant anti-Semitism, it's sycophantic missions. Um, but let's move on to Senator Kane, who you just heard give a very thoughtful 
um, discussion about the state of Israel, you called him an Israel basher. You don't believe Senator Kane is an Israel basher, do you? No, I had a great meeting yesterday with Senator Kane and learned a lot that I didn't know about him, and I completely retract that statement. It was absolutely wrong. And, and the comments go on about sitting members of the United States Senate that you've made in the past. Uh, Secretary Clinton, former, uh, uh, former Senator Clinton, uh, you, you t talked about her having anti-Semitic sentiments, harboring anti-Semitic sentiments. Uh, Senator Schumer, as has been discussed before, um, one of the, uh, again, someone who shares your depth of love for the state of Israel. Uh, it's been read already, but you said no matter how he ultimately votes, by making the decision a such a close call, which is plainly it should not be, uh, and these words are very dramatic, Senator Schumer is violating the worst appeasement of terrorism since Munich. Um, that obviously, to me, I, I tried to find other ambassadors for posts such as this, as Israel, who said such things that you would agree that we're not just policy disagreements or not just the heat of a politician. Um, those are comments that actually demean the character of another human being. Would you agree that they were demeaning to the character of those individuals? I tried to criticize the words rather than the person, but I could certainly understand how it extended to the character. It was not intentional, but I certainly understand that. Sir, you, you and I both from our family histories know a lot about people demeaning folks. We know a lot about hate speech and hate words. We do. Um, and we know that when people dismiss things as just words or, hey, it was just politics, that they are belittling actually the harm uh, and the damage that can do to individuals and entire communities. You would agree with that? I would. You also attacked the State Department um, with a hundred-year history. Uh, you said the State Department with a hundred-year history of anti-Semitism promotes the payoffs of corrupt Palestinians in exchange for their completely duplicitous agreements to support a two-state um, solution. Uh, you also said after four months ago about, you gave a speech in which you referred to the State Department as the State Department has been anti-Semitic and anti-Israel for the past 70 years. The ambassadors, Republican and Democrat, uh, who wrote a letter that's already been entered in the record, but they really took issue with someone who is now gonna be working with the State Department. Uh, to cast such a broad net over the incredible professionals that work there who often put themselves in harm's way for this country, who make sacrifices for the family of resources. They write in one paragraph, Mr. Friedman has accused President Obama, as we've already discussed in the entire State Department, of anti-Semitism. He's propagated the false conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton's advisor, Huma Abedin, has well-established ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. He's referred to the Anti-Defamation League as morons. He has characterized supporters of J Street, a liberal Jewish organization as capos, the Jews who cooperated with the Nazis during the Holocaust. They say that these are extreme radical positions. Um, words like capos um, resonate with me in particular because they reflect words, again, that you and I both know personally from our family histories how cruel, mean-spirited that kind of language is. You understand that, right? I understand it, Senator, and in addition to understanding it, um, in the course of uh, thousands of emails I received in response to those comments, I received an email from, I mean, some of those comments were unrepeatable, some were frightening, but 
a few of them were extraordinarily touching. One from a Holocaust survivor who wrote me and said that um, he survived the Holocaust, he loved Israel with all his heart, he disagreed with me on the best tactics to support Israel, but he felt that I had invalidated uh, the good faith of his positions. And I can tell you, the last person in the world I would want to offend would be someone like that. And it has, uh, it ha it's something that I deeply regret. So your, your, your past comments to me, um, and I understand that you're apologizing, but you and I both know the difference between apology and atonement, correct? I think an apology might be the first step to atonement. Yes, sir. You're, you're looking to be in a position as a diplomat right now at a time where you're entering an area of the globe that is delicate to say the least, in which there is tremendous passion and heart invested, in which my love and your love of the state of Israel um, often, as you said earlier in your testimony, a measured word the wrong way can have great ramifications. Yes. I, I have deep concerns with that history you have of uttering words, writing them, thoughtful ones, and not understanding the ramifications, even in the American context, that those could have. I just want to ask and turn to another just simple question I asked you about the USAID programs going on in the West Bank. Do you have intention to visit the West Bank, as, as if, should you be confirmed as ambassador? Uh, if... Uh if the State Department rules are changed, and I'm permitted to do so. I appreciate you I, recognizing that. Do you have yeah. intention of visiting the Temple Mount? Uh, no, I, I never have visited. I've been to Israel countless times. I've never visited the Temple Mount. Mr. Chairman, I'm grateful for your allowance of going over my time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Friedman, for being here, for your willingness to serve. Let me begin by saying that uh, I find this whole process to be unreal. I mean, this sort of ordeal you're being put through to account for all these words in particular, given some of the groups that are ratcheting all this up, this group J Street that, for example, a few years ago invited the chief Palestinian negotiator, Arakat, to address their conference, a person who has justified the murder of Jews and is, as self-defense is a person they invited to speak at their conference. This is a group who has routinely attacked people who hold my views with content that I find to be a smear and, quite frankly, a mischaracterization of our positions. The second thing I think you're confronting, uh, not in this hearing per se, but writ large, is what I believe is the sort of existent orthodoxy among many of the people in the State Department and among the so-called smart people in American foreign policy that somehow the United States needs to be a fair and balanced arbiter in this situation that we're facing in the Middle East. I don't understand that view. I really don't. First of all, my view is that uh, Israel is our strongest ally in the region. My view is that in addition to a moral uh, obligation that we have to protect the right of the Jewish people to a homeland, especially one founded in the aftermath of the Holocaust, they also happen to be the only pro-American, free enterprise democracy in the region. That alone is reason enough to be strongly aligned to them. The second point I would make is, and I find it startling, is all these so-called professionals in the State Department and again among the foreign policy elite are out there all the time. I very rarely hear them stand up and speak vociferously on the sorts of activities that are being conducted by some in the Palestinian leadership. Yet they are never, never reluctant to step forward and lead the efforts to condemn Israel time and again. And this is what you're going to confront when you are confirmed in terms of some in the State Department. There's also this misconception that continues to be spread around in the letters and all this old dialogue that's around this, that you somehow have issued a wholesale rejection 
of the so-called two-state solution. I think you've already testified here today, and you have said before, and others have said as well, that in a perfect and ideal world, you would have two independent states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, peacefully side by side living with one another. The problem is there are significant impediments to that, perhaps the least of which is the existence of Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria. For example, I would say that one of the biggest obstacles to that would be efforts by the previous administration to pressure Israel and to, and to impose upon them a negotiated settlement outside the bounds of what the Jewish people in Israel support and, and what is in the interest of the nation of Israel. The, uh, I would say a bigger impediment is the unwillingness of the leadership of the Palestinian Authority to recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. And that is the key phrase, not just Israel's right to exist, but as the homeland for the Jewish people. That is a big impediment to a deal. Because how are you going to negotiate a peaceful coexistence with a neighbor who does not recognize your right to exist? What are you negotiating? The terms of your destruction? I think that's a much bigger impediment. Or how about the wholesale, systematic indoctrination of young Palestinians into a, into a doctrine of hatred and the justification for the killing and the murdering of Jews that begins sadly, tragically, and outrageously at a very young age? I think that's a pretty big impediment. You know what else is a big impediment? These international efforts to impose on Israel a negotiated solution along the terms that other countries think are appropriate. I think that's a bigger impediment. You know what else is a bigger impediment? impediment? The incitement to violence by leaders of the Palestinian Authority. And that isn't widely reported, because often they, that doesn't make it into their English press releases. But when they go around justifying these attacks, when they dedicate monuments to so-called martyrs who are nothing but terrorists, when they spread ridiculous rumors about what the Israeli government's going to do on the Temple Mount or with the Dome of the Rock, these things that incite violence. And so I view these things as bigger impediments than all the other things. And I think it's accurate to say that your position is not that you are opposed to this ideal outcome in which there would be two states, but that you recognize that at this moment, given the circumstances that exist in the world today and in that region in particular, it is not likely to have that outcome. And hopefully that will change. Hopefully the Palestinians uh, will have better leadership. Hopefully they'll be more prosperous. Hopefully they'll have an opportunity to grow their economy and their security. And maybe in 20 years, 15 years, five years, sooner rather than later, we all hope there will be the opportunity for this to occur. But right now those conditions are perhaps not in place. And the worst thing we can try to do is to go in there and impose on our most loyal and important ally in the region a deal that is bad for their security and bad for their future. Is that an accurate characterization of your feelings with regards to the two-state solution? I think it is, Senator. Let me just say, Mr. Chairman, I do want to enter into the record a letter from the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America. Without objection. One, one last point that... Uh, as an ambassador, at the end of the day, your role will be to represent, advocate for, and implement the policy of the president. Is that correct? 100% uh, correct. And, um, and so uh, on any issue, whether it's the location of the embassy, whether it's our position on any given matter, it is your job ultimately to be an advocate for the decisions made from the Oval Office and by this administration, not your personal views. Certainly. I will be an advocate for the president in the same way that I would be an advocate for a client. My personal views are completely subordinated to the views of the president and the secretary of state. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Friedman, for taking time to come and meet with me yesterday. Um, I, I'm not going to 
relitigate the concerns that people have raised about some of your statements with respect to senators and um, the former president, though I share those concerns. Um, but I'm concerned about an article that you wrote in November of 2015 talking about Russia's intervention in Syria, where you held up that intervention as a model and predicted that they would succeed in defeating ISIS. And the title of the article is Learn a Lesson from Russia, and I would ask Mr. Chairman that it be entered into the record. Without objection. Um, I think at that time we had already seen news reports about um, Russia's failure, in fact, to go after ISIS and their um, motives to hold up the Assad regime. And we have seen since then their um, indiscriminate bombing of civilians in Aleppo, um, their blowing up of aid workers, their bombing of hospitals. So I, I would just ask, do you still believe that in the last year the Russian military has done more to defeat ISIS than the United States? No, and, and, and my, my, I, I was not intending to in any way praise Russia. My, my point there was simply that Russia had, um, R Russia used ISIS as a, as a platform, an excuse, if you will, to enter the region to prop up the Assad regime. Uh, it was, I thought, a deplorable act. My, the point of my article was simply that I lamented that the United States had not acted as it had threatened to do when the president set the, uh, the red line um, to, uh, and, and left the area open to a vacuum. But much has changed since then, and the United States has certainly, since that time, uh, done much more to defeat ISIS than Russia. Um, I appreciate that, though you did, in that article, um, characterize the situation as, and I quote, American leaders forced their stellar military commanders to fight with two hands and a leg tied behind their backs. Vladimir Putin gets it. He may be a thug, as he was recently described, but he knows how to identify a national objective, execute a military plan, and ultimately prevail. Um, in the article, you also refer to the global coalition to counter ISIL as, I quote, a coalition of cowards, freeloaders, and hypocrites led from behind by the American president. Um, do you think that kind of rhetoric is conducive to securing partners in this fight against ISIL? No, I don't. I think that was uh, a view I raised as a private person um, without that objective. So I appreciate the comments that you made about um, ensuring that Israeli Arabs are treated fairly. Um, I appreciated that comment when you met with me yesterday. Um, I, I've heard troubling stories from Arab Americans who say they've experienced discrimination by Israeli authorities at the Israeli border um, for no other reason than because they have Arab last names. And as someone who has an Arab last name, as you can probably tell, it's not me, it's my husband who's of Lebanese descent. But how would you, as ambassador, address that concern that you hear, should you hear that from Arab Americans who feel like they have not been treated fairly? Well, I, I would obviously be the ambassador 
for the benefit of Arab Americans as well as any other Americans, and it's, um, it's inexcusable for any country to discriminate on the basis of one's nationality, religion, or otherwise. Um, I would want to engage with the Israelis and understand uh, the process that they were using for their immigration and encourage them. Uh, obviously, they have their own national security issues, which, which I think we all respect, but that's not a basis to uh, engage, especially against the American population in any, um, in any process that would be discriminatory. So I would certainly oppose that and work to, uh, work to make sure that it, it did not proceed. Um, thank you. You've written that Israel's policy of schizophrenia, of criticizing disloyal Arab citizens while simultaneously bestowing upon them the benefits of citizenship simply isn't working. Can you um, clarify if there are any circumstances um, under which citizens of Israel should be stripped of their benefits and what benefits you think could reasonably be removed? I, th I think this was in the context of criminal activity, not 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 on the basis of any, uh, not on the basis of their nationality. Certainly, just to be clear, I don't support any activity in Israel, this country, or anywhere else that would would be based upon one's uh, nation of origin. So, how do you feel about the president's executive order on immigration? Um, it was. Um, I accept the president's representation that it was a temporary temporary ban to. Um, keep the country safe. Even though we hadn't had any incidents from terrorists from any of those seven countries um, that we could point to? Senator, I, I don't know. I, I, I was not involved in that order, and I don't have access to the, uh, to the classified information, so I just don't know. I'm sorry. Thank you. I, I want to just end by reading you excerpts from a letter that I received from a constituent from Concord, New Hampshire. She says, in this letter, as a Jewish constituent of yours whose great uncle survived the Holocaust, I'm appalled by David Friedman's likening of liberal Jews to Nazi collaborators. My great uncle, Leon Messer, was born in 1920 in Poland. He was interned in the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp. He lost both his mother and his sister during the Holocaust. He was only able to survive due to his talent for fixing watches. She goes on to say, it's such a shame that someone who survived the brutality of the Nazi regime and who lost so many loved ones in the Holocaust would be disparaged today by the Israeli ambassador nominee, David Friedman, as a capo or Nazi collaborator, simply for standing up for what he believes is right. Mr. Friedman, what do I tell Alicia, my constituent, about why she should feel differently that you could, in fact, represent her and that you're not um, disparaging people who have her views? Um, if you, uh, I will be happy to give, uh, give, you my, give to you my number and I would apologize to her personally. I'm sorry she feels that way and I uh, respect her feelings and I'd like to uh, make amends. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Flake, I didn't use any of my time for questioning. It's just an observation. I, first of all, thank you for being here. I know we had a very good meeting. You're, you're here today having to recant every single strongly held belief that you've expressed, almost. 
And I'm just curious about um, this job and its importance to you to be willing to recant every single strongly held belief that you've had. I just wonder if you'd share that with us because it's, it is interesting to listen and, and you know, you've done a lot of that and I appreciate that. And sometimes when people run for public office, they say things and they have to massage them to a degree, but this is fairly extraordinary. And I would wonder if you would share with us why you're willing to do that to serve in this capacity. The opportunity to serve my country uh, as ambassador to Israel would be really the fulfillment of a of a life's dream, of a, of a life's work, of um, a life of study of the uh, the people, the culture, the uh, politics of Israeli society. Um, one of the great things I love about this country is the fact that it was the first country to recognize Israel and has stood with Israel steadfastly through thick and thin over very, very many challenging circumstances. Uh, I believe that based upon my relationship with the country and its people, I can be helpful, I can do good. Uh, I believe that based upon my relationship with the president, I can help him uh, get to the right place. And uh, as he said, um, colloquially to make a deal to bring peace to the region. Um, my views are my views. Uh, some of them, uh, I, 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 I recant certainly the rhetoric and the inflammation uh, that I've caused, the hurt that I've caused. Um, I need to do a much better job going forward, and I intend to and I will with regard to uh, a diplomatic mission. It's very different, obviously, than being a private citizen and writing articles. Um, but this is something I, I really want to do because I think I can do it well. And uh, there's nothing more important to me than strengthening the bonds between the United States and Israel. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Friedman. Um, let's kind of continue on that theme for a minute. How important is it? Uh, Congress has really been the bulwark of support for Israel over the years, as we mentioned, you mentioned in, in my office. It, it's Congress that, uh, that is the enduring institution that, uh, that has supported Israel, and it has always been marked by bipartisanship, that support. Can you talk about the importance of that? Uh, I can, Senator. Um, I think it's been the exception rather than the rule that the, uh, that the Congress has divided over an issue like Israel. Um, Israel really is not a political issue. For the United States, it's very much a moral issue. Uh, the United States stands with Israel, obviously, because Israel and the United States have common interests, militarily, economically, technologically, but first and foremost, their relationship is on the basis of shared values. And shared values are not political. Shared values are, are that direct connection that the two countries have commitment to democracy, to human rights, um, to, to biblical values. And um, uh, to me, it would be greatly disappointing if I could not help uh, departisanize, if that's a word, uh, the relationship, the, the, the uh, United States relationship with Israel. Thank you. Let me just address for a second the uh, comment yesterday with uh, the Prime Minister's visit. Uh, some of the comments have made some people report that uh, we're no longer committed in this country to a two-state solution. I know that's been addressed uh, at length here, but 
just one aspect of it. Do you see, uh, for one, I, I, don't, I don't see that break. <laughs> I uh, think the uh, framework that is most likely to produce lasting peace is a two-state solution. But uh, is there any likelihood at all that our fundamental principles is that the, the parties themselves, through direct negotiations, arrive at a solution? Is there any likelihood that the parties would adopt anything other than a two-state solution? Uh, I'd just like your thoughts on that. Um, I've seen no evidence of uh, an appetite by the Palestinians to a one-state solution. Um, but I, um, I guess I would, I would say, if if it happens, we'll we'll notice it. But I haven't seen it yet. Right. But the the bedrock principle is still direct negotiations between the parties. Yes. And not have a solution imposed by outside organizations, be it the uh, General Assembly or Security Council or any other outside body. Correct. Including the United States. That's correct, Senator. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Martin. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for being here today and for your willingness to serve. Um, I think building off of the opening question from Senator Flake, um, the reason many of us are asking you these detailed questions about statements that you've made in the past about those who have uh, sometimes been supportive of diplomatic engagements in the region have not always been supportive of the positions that Netanyahu has taken is that we're very worried that support for Israel is just becoming another political football in this place. It used to be something that united Democrats and Republicans. We had differences, but what was most important was keeping our support for Israel out of the political playing field. And today that's not the case. In the very short time that I've been in public service, um, Israel has gone from an issue that united us to an issue that is now used in political campaigns in order to try to divide us. Um, and so I think you're being asked these questions because we are very worried about what the future holds. And your nomination is one of the strongest partisans uh, on the issue of Israel, being willing to call Democrats all sorts of terrible names. Um, suggests that we are just in for another really rough stretch when it comes to um, trying to heal those divisions. And I appreciate what you said, that you want your tenure to be one of healing partisan divisions, but if that was really the intent of this administration, um, there are frankly a lot of other people who would have been better suited to play that role. Um, and so I do wanna just ask some questions here. I think Senator Corker's right to ask about, you know, the, the um, these, this exceptional level of, of, uh, of, of recantations and reversals. And I guess it's something different to me to regret words that you said um, than it is to actually change your underlying opinion. So let me just make sure that on probably your most controversial statement that I have this right. Um, when you said that J Street and supporters of J Street um, are worse than Capos, um, I hear that you say that you regret those words. But have you changed your opinion on that matter? I have uh, profound differences of opinion with the J Street organization. I don't think that will change. My regret is that I did not express those views respectfully, um, recognizing that they're every much 
uh, as entitled as I am to have a different view. My, my, my regrets are as to the, the language and the rhetoric. Uh, I'm not withdrawing my, my personal views as to the organization. But, is your, but the, is your personal view still that J Street and its supporters are worse than the capos of the World War II era? No. Okay. It's not my view. Okay. Um, let me ask about the word anti-Semite. You've thrown it around fairly liberally to describe um, actions of the Obama administration, and you draw a distinction between calling actions anti-Semitic versus calling individuals anti-Semitic. The pushback on that is that that phrase is a description of motivations. Um, it's a description about what lies in someone's heart, right? The idea that someone hates Jews um, and thus carries out actions based upon that belief. So can you, I just wanna make sure that, I wanna make sure that you believe that in calling my words or my actions anti-Semitic, that you are calling me anti-Semitic. I don't agree with that, Senator. Why? Because I think someone could inadvertently or unintentionally say something that is perceived by someone with a long history of being exposed to anti-Semitism as being anti-Semitic, while the speaker himself would have done it completely unintentionally um, or with even good intentions. Sometimes words are, uh, are uttered by one and, and perceived by the other, and it, it, uh, you know, the speaker and the, and the recipient but, but, are but, just on different pages. But perception is in the eye of the beholder. So you're saying that the, that the phrase anti-Semitic is owned by the person who hears the words. It's not about the motivation of the individual. So my motivations have nothing to do with whether my actions or my words can be described legitimately as anti-Semitic. Well, as I, as I said, um, words could be legitimately perceived as anti-Semitic, even, even though the speaker would harbor no anti-Semitic feelings. And you would call, and you have no problem calling my actions anti-Semitic, even if you believe that in my heart I have no desire to discriminate against Jews. I, I could see challenging the words uh, without challenging the motivations of the speaker. Another one of your more controversial statements was your hope that Donald Trump would fire um, individuals in the State Department uh, who have opposed policies that you and he have espoused to, uh, such as moving the embassy. Um, President Trump, uh, through uh, his, his press secretary, has said that those in the Department of State that don't agree with the president's viewpoints uh, should get on board or get out, um, and has suggested that the typical means of expressing dissent within the Department of State are no longer legitimate. You either agree with the president or you have no place in the administration, which would topple decades of precedent within the department. Um, your statement suggests you agree with that, that uh, the president should fire individuals who don't uh, agree with positioning. Can you, is that also a statement that uh, you recant and have reversed? Would you uh, try to seek the ouster of individuals working for the embassy that don't agree with your viewpoints? 
No, Senator, I, th I think uh, any executive has a right to uh, have people that support his view, who are willing to execute his views however they feel. Um, obviously, within the State Department, it's, there's tens of thousands of people who are entitled to their opinions and have differing views. At certain levels, the president is entitled to, uh, to have people report to him who are prepared to execute his directives on, power, on foreign policy. He's the commander-in-chief, the chief executive, and I think he has that right. What, given that you'll be running an embassy, last question, what level is that? You're going to be, you're going to have a lot of civil servants who have served the country very well. They'll be in important positions like political military officers, people liaisoning with the Israeli government. What level of individual um, has, to, has to believe in their heart in the same direction as you in order to maintain their position? I think in my case, uh, None, because I'm not making any policies. I'm simply uh, observing the directives of the president. So whether people agree with me or not in the embassies, I think completely irrelevant. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Friedman, for uh, your willingness to serve. Uh, welcome to your family and uh, for your patience through this endurance test of a hearing. Uh, really appreciate the chance to get to know you a little bit better and talk about the leadership opportunities we have uh, with the United States, with Israel, and our, our great, uh, great opportunities uh, between the two, both uh, from a security standpoint and economic standpoint. Uh, I had the last chance, the last time I was in Israel, to visit uh, with Senator Cardin, Senator Markey, Senator Merkley, uh, just about a year ago. Uh, perhaps I think it was March, if that's uh, correct, Senator uh, Cardin. Uh, and uh, the first time I had the opportunity to visit Israel was, I think, August of 2011, with a few other members of Congress. And we went to uh, IDF headquarters, and we visited with a general, I believe at the time he was the head of Israel, Israeli planning division, uh, General Eshel, I think if I recall correctly was his name. And one of, the, one of my colleagues asked a very simple question I thought was simple to General Eshel at the time, and it was, um, you know, what is your view of U.S. foreign policy in the region? And after about 45 seconds or a minute of hemming and hawing and trying to avoid the question, my colleague said, please just give us the, the answer. You're not going to offend us. Um, General Eshel then spent several minutes frightening us and uh, talking about his answer. And his answer was simply this, that they didn't know where the United States foreign policy was. They didn't know where the United States would be tomorrow because they didn't understand what we were doing in the region, who our friends were and who our friends would be. That was 2011, there was a lot happening around that time frame. Um, sometime later, I had the opportunity to go back to Israel and visit with General Eshel again. Now, General Eshel had no reason to remember me, but General Eshel made, uh, I asked, was able to ask him the same question. What is your view of US foreign policy in the region? And I was startled with the same answer. Today, uh, Mr. Friedman, what would you say Israel views the US foreign policy as? And, what do you believe can be accomplished under your leadership as ambassador to Israel that they would walk away with understanding the firm commitment the United States has to our great ally, friend, uh, Israel? I think, the, I think the most important thing in the relationship between our two countries is something that I picked up this morning or late last night in the, in the readout from the meeting between the Prime Minister of Israel and the President, which is that there be no daylight between the two countries. Doesn't mean that there should be no disagreements. But Israel has no other friends like the United States. Um, sometimes they don't have any friends at all other than the United States. And when the rest of the world sees that the United States and Israel are not aligned, um, they, there's a risk that they will become more aggressive against Israel. 
So I think that um, loyalty um, and respect uh, and no daylight is, is the, I think everything else is sort of details and can get worked out. And uh, it's, uh, it's what I think Israel needs from us. And um, I think that's where, where the president is now. Thank you, Mr. Friedman. The strategic outlet, outlook uh, for Israel in the region. Uh, where are we going with Iran right now? I don't know if you've had an opportunity to address the Iran uh, deal, uh, what is happening in Jordan, uh, the stability of Jordan, obviously key uh, to security in Israel. Uh, could you talk a little about the strategic uh, outlook for the region? I think the, the Gulf states, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, and the Israelis are all united, uh, perhaps inadvertently so, but they're all united in a common concern about Iran. Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, I think that uh, without relitigating the Iran deal, obviously it's no secret that I was very much against the Iran deal. Um, but sitting here today, Iran uh, just recently tested ballistic missiles. I'm not sure why anyone would have a ballistic missile except to deliver a nuclear warhead. Um, they continue to provoke the United States. They, as the Prime Minister of Israel said yesterday, they write in Hebrew uh, on their missiles, destroy Israel. Um, you know, Israel doesn't have the, um, the distance between itself and Iran that, that we have, and we all know how nervous they are about it, and I think all the other Sunni states are nervous as well. Um, I don't think this is something that I will... Uh, be engaged on, but I certainly uh, support the president's view that um, we need to reinstitute leverage on Iran to um, to hold them to the very first page of the JCPOA, which says that Iran will not uh, develop or acquire a nuclear weapon. I'm not sure what the other pages are. If given that first page, I'm not sure why we need another 90. But but that page is the page that we ought to be focusing on and enforcing uh, as hard as we can. Thank you, Mr. Friedman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I had, uh, when we were in Israel with Senator Cardin's uh, delegation, uh, we were there over Purim, I believe it was, and we visited a, a Iron Dome uh, missile battery, rocket battery, uh, right outside of Eshkelon, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, as the celebration was taking place in Eshkelon, you could hear the voices uh, uh, participating in that uh, holiday, uh, right by the Iron Dome facility. Uh, and so uh, I think the mention of daylight between our two nations is important and that we have to spend time, uh, the United States and Israel, assuring and restating the fact that there is no daylight between our two nations. And I look forward to working with you uh, to make that happen. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Friedman, congratulations uh, on the nomination and uh, welcome to your family. Um, you're a lawyer, and as a lawyer, you have obligations to clients. Could, could you describe succinctly what's your obligation to any given client? Uh, zealous advocacy, loyalty, confidentiality. Faith and fidelity. No question. So who's your client if you ultimately uh, achieve a confirmment of uh, your position? Well, I would pledge to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and I interpret that as having in the broadest sense, an obligation to the entire country. 
And in that context, it is the national interest and security of the United States that one would pledge fidelity to. Is that not correct? Yes, sir. And in that context, um, uh, you know, you have presented yourself here and in our very long private conversation as someone who is smart and measured and temperate. Yet, I get a sense that your love for the state of Israel overwhelmed your language, which was not necessarily temperate at the end of the day. And so the question is, we cannot uh, have an ambassador who ultimately will be moved as much as they may be passionate about the country that they are being sent to, uh, or by the prime minister of that country. Uh, as much as uh, we may have the greatest of relationships, that will not bend their will to that, but it will bend their will to what is in the national interest and the security of the United States. Can you tell the members of this committee that that is, in fact, what your loyalty and commitment is? That will be 100% my loyalty and commitment and to no, to no one else. Now, uh, you have rejected many of the past comments that have been made. I won't go through them again. Uh, in some cases, I've actually heard you use the word you've apologized to individuals. I take your rejection of some of what you said as intemperate remarks, uh, also an apology to those who may be affronted by them. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, when you came to see me, uh, I was quite uh, interested in hearing from you unsolicitedly. I asked you many questions. But unsolicitedly, you spoke about promoting economic development in the West Bank and helping to build a strong Palestinian middle class. We haven't heard a lot about that today. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? There are, there is business activity in the West Bank. Um, there are people, there are businessmen in the West Bank who are uh, building industries. Um, the unemployment rate in the West Bank is too high. The only way I can, uh, the only way I can think of to bring it down is to foster that type of industry. Um, I would like to work with Israel to make the commercial environment in the West Bank less burdensome. Um, there are issues of water, there are issues of electricity, there are issues of the movement of goods and services. Um, there's also obviously security considerations that overwhelm everything else. But technologies are improving. Security can be less intrusive now than it's been in the past. Um, I think Israel could probably do better, and I, I, without a specific instance, I think they could do better. And I think we could, uh, in the, as part of the effort uh, within the region, the Gulf states, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, uh, to try to improve the Palestinian economy, I think we could look to some of those, certainly some of the wealthier nations to help. So some of the uh, ultimate uh, efforts, the underpinnings necessary to achieve the peace that we all desire, uh, it would be fair to say that in one context, building the economic livelihood and uh, abilities of Palestinians to realize their hopes and dreams and aspirations is an important one. Is that not fair to say? I think it might be the most important one. And, and you share in that to the extent that the administration and the Congress are seeking to pursue those goals, you share those goals as well, I would assume. I do. Now, you uh, left out of your statement when, you, I guess for purposes of time, uh, something that I found uh, interesting. 
you supported uh, an entity called United Hatzala. I, I, I don't know if my pronunciation is right, but uh, an Israeli organization of volunteer first responders that uses advanced technology to weave through traffic to provide emergency services and save lives. What makes Hatzala so special is that it is comprised of volunteers from the entire spectrum of the Israeli population, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, religious and secular, right and left wing. They all operate under a single credo, treat patients in the order of the severity of the affliction and never let any other considerations, political, religious, or otherwise, influence your commitment to saving lives. And you go on to say, Hatzalah represents the best of the Israeli people. Uh, does Hezbollah capture the essence of your feelings uh, towards both Palestinians uh, and Israelis? It, it does, Senator. In, in fact, I was in uh, Israel this past summer at a, at a session of the Knesset when a, uh, an eight-year-old boy gave an award to a Muslim volunteer at uh, United Hatzalah. Uh, the Muslim volunteer had pulled his mother out of a burning car a year and a half earlier, saved her life, and the boy gave an award to this Muslim, Jewish boy gave this award to a Muslim volunteer for saving, for saving his mother's life. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. And it, again, this organization, because of the way it operates, represents the very best of all the Israeli people. It gives me great hope and optimism for the future. Uh, do you believe that the life of a Palestinian child is of the same value as the life of a Jewish child? Absolutely. Do you believe the dignity of a Palestinian woman is the same as the dignity of a Jewish woman. I, I sure do. Do you believe that Palestinians ultimately have a right in some or form and fashion to self-governing themselves? I do. Uh, you know, uh, in, a, in addition to uh, pursuing the national interest and security of the United States, I assume that whatever personal interests that you may have in Israel, that you will wall those off in such a way that that will not be a question as well. I've agreed to sell my business interest in Israel. And finally, uh, some might uh, think uh, that this is a nomination conversion versus a true uh, process towards atonement for some of the things that may have been said in an ideological war uh, and in a political context and environment and that they are just for the purposes of achieving the goal of getting your nomination through. What would you say to that, to those who are thinking that as they sit uh, here? Senator, I'm sitting here uh, under oath, taking that oath seriously. My views are entirely heartfelt. And so uh, what you have told me in response to my questions is what you have in your heart what you have in your mind, and what you will do if, in fact, you are confirmed by the Senate. That's correct. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Paul. Welcome, Mr. Friedman. Congratulations on your nomination. Thank you. I think sometimes there's a presumption that uh, America knows best as in charge of everything and that we're going to tell everybody the way things are going to be. And I think it sort of ignores the sovereignty of other nations and the opinions of other nations, frankly, particularly in the peace process, that we've decided what the peace process is since 1947 and doesn't look like there's peace yet, so maybe there ought to be some other thoughts. 
I'm not here to say what the best peace process is, but I would say that maybe sometimes we need to take a step back and realize that any kind of peace process is going to have to take agreement from both sides and that what both sides of the conflict think is probably more important than us. doesn't mean we shouldn't have any role, but I don't think we should be so presumptuous as that we're going to dictate the role. The same would apply somewhat to settlements. Um, so we can all have our own opinion. I know you have your opinion on settlements. Um, but it's also not our country, and we don't live there, and it's not saying it's not a problem. I'm just saying that I'm not so sure the United States should dictate this. That being said, um, I think that uh, we ought to be aware of the ramifications of policy, and we can voice our, you know, our opinions on these. And I think yours have been very strong that, you know, in favor of settlement. My question is, is that, you know, and this has come up recently with the press conference, uh, uh, President Trump has actually sort of voiced, you know, some hesitancy to the 5,400 new units in the West Bank. And while I'm not here to say what my opinion is or what the government should tell Israel what to do, I would say that we ought to account for and think about what 5,400 new settlements in the West Bank do to the possibility of peace. Um, are you open to thinking about what the ramifications are and that there's another side to the settlement issue other than just saying, hey, we should build everywhere all the time? Yes, I am. Okay. I think that's the open-mindedness that people want to hear and want to know is are you open-minded enough to know there's another position and that there are ramifications and that you'll listen. I think sometimes, particularly in our country, we think everybody thinks alike in Israel. We have no idea what goes on. If anything, they have more diversity of opinion and thought than, than we do on issues of Israel, I would say. And we need to understand that. And your job as ambassador is to understand, you know, that maybe a third of the population of Israel, maybe 40 percent, I don't know the number, but a significant number don't want new settlements in the West Bank either. But I think your job will be to report that to the president and to let him know the different uh, viewpoints within Israel. What are the ramifications of new settlement, even if we don't get a say? Now, the capital's a little bit different. Um, Israel gets to decide the capital of their country, but as you and I discussed, I think, uh, well, we've talked about moving into Jerusalem. No one else has an embassy there, right? Correct. There will be ramifications if we move it. What I want to know is, are you a thoughtful individual? Will you think about the ramifications? Will we think to ourselves long and hard that if we do move our embassy there and a thousand Israeli soldiers die because of it, or somehow Americans are caught up in it, that Will, we, will it have been something that was worth our while if we do it for the symbolism of it, if people die because of it? And will you think through the ramifications of that and advise the president that there's more than one side to the issue? Yes, Senator. The, the, the decision obviously will be made by the president, and I, I'm confident he will, and I would support him considering all of the political uh, security and other ramifications associated. I don't put myself out as an expert or someone who has an answer to the Middle East piece. I wish I did. Uh, but uh, having traveled there once, I have an opinion like everyone else. And my opinion basically is it is elusive, and I think I'm fairly justified in that. But I would say that I came back from Israel thinking that our best hope is incremental change. And I think it's an equation where Israel does hold most of the cards and most of the power. They have an unparalleled military, and I don't think things are going to change militarily. I just, these are the facts on the ground. So I would say that there is chance for improvement, 
but it's going to be incremental. And one of the things I met with Palestinian businessmen, some of the ones you refer to in general, I don't know if in specific, recently, and they mentioned to me Area C in the West Bank. And when you look at the dots and which areas are controlled by people, Area C is like 80% of the West Bank, and they feel like they don't have access to it, that they're forbidden from drinking, you know, drilling for water, drilling for minerals, trying to set up enterprises where they make more money. And my advice would be to meet with Palestinian businessmen listen to, and women, listen to them, and say, gosh, if this is a way that we can lessen tension and hostility between the groups, why don't we see if there is a way that Palestinians can make more money, that trade can be enhanced. There's all kinds of things that are not the ultimate you know, and final agreement, which is elusive, that we could do. And I want to know that you're open-minded to saying, you know what, we're less likely to have war the more we trade, the more we have interaction. Are you open-minded enough to hear the other side from the Palestinians on what we could do to enhance uh, and lessen hostility. Senator, I would be excited to have those discussions. Okay. And I think some of that could be done here. I don't know, there is some of that here, you know, between the different parties. Some of that can be done over there. But I think it's important that you project to them uh, that you are open-minded on these things because you have had, and I'm not, I have strong opinions too. So I mean, the thing is, having strong opinions isn't always a fault. But I would say that you have to show people that you're open-minded enough to be a diplomat, which means hearing from, talking to both parties, and uh, understanding the complexity and the ramifications of every little policy that happens over there. Yeah, I will, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Freeman, in our office, um, we talked about a two-state solution. We talked about um, what may be possible, you said it was the gold standard, but um, in our conversation, and perhaps you could help me to kind of flesh this out a little bit further, uh, you mentioned uh, a scenario under which um, the West Bank could be incorporated into Israel, and that the country would still maintain its Jewish and democratic uh, identity. Uh, could you go through that scenario and how you look at those numbers and how you would view that as an, a, an alternative? Senator, I don't, I don't view it as a, an alternative. Um, I, I think, at least to, to me, the discussion was more in, in the hypothetical, but I think that the, um, I think there, there is a, a general uh, conventional wisdom that Israel can either be Jewish or democratic but not both under that type of a scenario. I don't know the um, demographics of the West Bank well enough. There are multiple studies that have been done. I think demographics of the West Bank are a very important part of working forward. Uh, and I think we ought to all have the same data because the, the swings of population assumptions go from a million and a half uh, Arabs to three million. And uh, at, at a million and a half Arabs, it's, uh, it's one scenario. At three million, it could be another. And I don't know which is true or if some number in the middle is true. I'm not sure it matters. I'm spe I was speaking really in the, in the hypothetical. But because demographics matters to any future discussion, we ought to have good data. And I, was, I would certainly encourage the Israelis on a nonpartisan basis to try to get better data on those demographics. Um, but ultimately, do you think the Palestinians would accept a solution that had the West Bank incorporated into Israel and then 
if the, Democrat, the, the demographics were such that then they remained in the minority and that Gaza was excluded from a final agreement, do you think there's a scenario under which the Palestinians could accept um, a, a deal that, uh, that, that created uh, that new entity uh, and, uh, and kept, the minor kept the Palestinians in a permanent minority in uh, within that greater Israel that was, would have been created? I can't imagine that either Israel or the Palestinians would accept a scenario where there were different rights for different citizens in terms of whether the Palestinians were in the uh, majority or the minority. I, I couldn't speak for them. I, uh, I, I would only point out that Israel itself has a very good track record of providing good uh, education, health care, commercial opportunities, human rights, uh, rights to the... Uh, LBGTQ community, uh, support of women's rights. I think Israel is very good to its Palestinian citizens, and so that might be a uh, something that the Palestinians in the West Bank might be attracted to, but I would never speak for them. So you don't personally support Israeli annexation of the West Bank? No, I do not. You do not. Uh, you're saying that that would have to be part of an agreement. As the president said, it, it, all, of this, all of this has to be agreed to by the parties or else it, it won't proceed. Yeah, because I, I, it's hard for me to envision a situation where the Palestinians would allow a division of the question where the West Bank was a part of the agreement and Gaza uh, and its residents did not have uh, rights that were vested uh, uh, with the citizens of, of that part of uh, the Palestinian population. Um, what, what are, if you could, you, you, you talked about the two-state solution as the best possibility. Uh, can you give us another possibility in your mind that you think could unfold in terms of an agreement that could be reached between the Israelis and the Palestinians? I, I, sitting here today, I don't have a better, a better option. You do not have a better option? No, I don't. No. Um, and I know that this terrain has already been um, uh, has been traveled in the hearing, but uh, if I could, I'd like to go out and just talk a little bit about uh, the uh, Bet L settlement. Yes, sir. And some of the comments from people who uh, are out there. Uh, Bet L is training students, for example, to quote, successfully delegitimize the notion of a two state uh, solution and uh, creating facts on the ground in the face of the international community's desire to uproot us. Can you talk about comments like that coming out of the um, Bet El community uh, in Ramallah uh, and your views on those uh, comments in terms of its implication for reaching a two-state solution? I think, they're, I think they're a challenge among many to achieving a two-state solution. I should point out that um, my affiliation with Bet El is as the president of the uh, American Friends of Beit El Yeshiva Center. We support a Talmudic academy and, and a boys' high school and a girls' high school, and it primarily derives from my commitment to Jewish education. The quality of those schools are excellent, and everything that we've given money to has been in the nature of uh, gymnasiums, uh, dormitories, uh, dining rooms, classrooms, uh, things like that. So um, my philanthropic activity there has not uh, been connected to their political activity, which I really had no part in. 
If the land in Bet L was included in a two-state solution and that that land had to be returned to the Palestinians, would you support the return of that land to the Palestinians? In the context of a consensual, fully agreed to two-state solution? That's correct. Yes. You would? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I have, uh, I have some questions I've refrained uh, from asking until the end, but I know Senator Cardin um, has some questions. I'll let him finish and then... If I could, and I, with no disrespect to the chairman, I have a commitment. To, so after I ask these one or two questions, I'm going to thank Mr. Freeman for your patience and thank you very much again for your willingness to serve and for your passion for the relationship between Israel and the United States. It it's, it's comes across very clearly from your testimony, and I just want to underscore that. The White House issued a statement on February 2nd saying we don't believe the existence of settlements is an impediment to peace. The construction of new settlements or the expansion of the existing settlements beyond their current borders may not be helpful to achieving that goal. What is your view in regards to expansion of settlements or new settlements? Uh, I think the expansion of settlements uh, into new territories or beyond borders, uh, I agree with the President, it may not be helpful and uh, I think it makes sense to uh, tread very carefully in that area. Thank you. And last point, I think I'll, maybe I'll ask this for the record. We've been talking a lot about the West Bank, but very little about Gaza. Gaza is much more difficult than the West Bank. Uh, and I would, we had a chance in my office to talk a little bit about Gaza, but I just let me put that on the record. I might ask you a couple questions for the record because it is a complicated situation on how you deal with Gaza if you don't have a viable two-state process moving forward. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, I saw the headline you had written about the two states solution being somewhat of an, an illusion. And yesterday, I, with others, had a meeting with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who we all respect greatly. And I listened to him say, I'm not going to say what he said in a private meeting, but it was very much along the same lines that he constantly has said publicly, which um, in, in past comments has referred to the fact that, you know, in until the Palestinians are willing to accept uh, Israel's right to exist. Um, it's very difficult to have a two-state solution. And then he refers, rightly so, to the fact that, uh, you know, one of his great responsibilities is the security of the people of Israel. And that, you know, I, there's not a time that you can see in the future ever where there's not military presence by the Israelis in the West Bank. And we keep talking about the West Bank because it's the place that's most likely for something good to happen, and Gaza obviously is way beyond that. I, I do wonder, um, especially after yesterday, but also seeing uh, all of the many efforts that have been put, place, put in place around the two-state solution. I know Tony Blair... Um, I don't know how many times he's been to the to the area. I think he told me once, uh, heard him speak, he'd been there 160 times, and uh, his wife made the joke, you know, Tony, it's it's not the number of, it's not the amount of effort, it's the result, and of course there's been none. I, are we helping the situation by continually talking about a two-state solution when having a military presence in the West Bank ad infinitum forever by Israel is really something different than a two-state solution. It's a, it's a serious question, and I, 
I, I, I'm beginning to wonder whether we're actually, you know, verbalizing this in the appropriate manner. Uh, it's not a gotcha question. It's an honest question. I know you've expressed very strong feelings. I sometimes think that we here in the public arena talk about things and keep holding something out um, regarding many conflicts around the world that uh, maybe is not achievable based on the facts on the ground. And I'm just wondering uh, what your observation would be regarding that. Well, Senator, uh Yitzhak Rabin, who is, I think, regarded universally as the architect of the two-state solution and who gave his life in pursuit of the two-state solution, uh, he himself said that his, his vision was for, I think it was either, I think he used the, the term state minus or something like that. I think, I think the, um, the challenges here are Israel's security and the Palestinians' quality of life. Um, I don't know. Uh, if the Palestinian people at this juncture care more about the flag over their heads, who's, who's leading them, as they care about reducing the unemployment rate down from an ungovernable level to a manageable level. Um, I've heard Palestinians uh, decry their leadership, and they're no friends of Israel either. Um, I suspect that um, the key to the region is economic empowerment, not political uh, debates. And that's why, um, I guess until I'm proven wrong, which could be, could be soon, I would, I would work to try to improve the economic yep. levels. I, I absolutely think that is uh, something that needs to occur. And in my, my last trip there, and speaking with the Prime Minister in Ramallah, that you know, certainly was the focus. I, I will say the flip side of that is when you know you've got settlements out here and you've got to have security around those settlements, it's very difficult to do commerce uh, in between. I mean, it's, it's, let's face it, it's, it's more than burdensome. It's not, uh, I'm not criticizing, I'm just observing that it's very difficult to, to do commerce when you're uh, dealing with that. So, so again, back to it, what, what would be a better way of uh, describing the vision there? Because um, a state that has ad infinitum forever, uh, sort of military for, secure, for, for realistic security measures, has a military of another country in it, what would we, what would we call that? I mean, state minus is not particularly good description, but I, I think that we we talk about this, we use rhetoric that I'm beginning to believe is unrealistic rhetoric, and I don't know that it's uh, useful uh, in getting to a solution when you're describing something that, to me, is becoming more and more unrealistic for many, many reasons. I'm not casting blame. And, and I, I don't, Senator Candley, I don't have... Uh a good answer to your question, and I certainly don't have a, a good word for to articulate a, a vision. Um, it's an enormous challenge. It's a it's a very big Rubik's cube that we all try to wrestle with every day. And I uh, I take the medical approach, even though I'm not a doctor, to this, which is let's not make it worse. Let's do no harm, and then let's try to make it better. And uh, I think that's the only that's the only advice I have right now. And I think your response on the settlements uh, indicates that. Um, let me ask you this. Do you think that um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been very clear on this for many years? 
you know Israel well. Do you think the vision of military presence in the West Bank forever is the general view of the sort of the mainstream of, of uh, Gnesset there? Uh, I think the uh, control of the Jordan Valley is something which people on the left and the right agree upon. I think that is the single most important feature of any Palestinian state. Doesn't mean that has to be military embedded within the, the communities or even the towns, but at the perimeter, I do believe that uh, on the left and the right, there's unanimity that there must be, uh, must be control of the perimeter. Well, it just seem, it seems to me that, that if that is the case, and I agree with you, I think that's the case, um, it just seems to me that we're at a point in time where we ought to be discussing the future, at least the future for the next 20 or 30 years anyway, in a different way. And I don't, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe that either, but uh, it just seems to me that, that uh, in addition to having a partner that is not a real partner on the Palestinian side, that there are uh, there's a vision on the Israeli side that is not com not fully compatible with what we would normally describe as a as a two-state solution. Again, it's just an observation, and it seems to me that we would be better off um, um, as a world community to talk about it in terms that uh, are different than we're we're talking about it right now. Well, Senator, you heard the president yesterday use the uh, term. Uh a larger canvas, and I haven't had a chance to uh, speak with him about that and flesh out those concepts, but I think certainly an open mind, uh, a commitment to peace above all else, to, to improve qualities of life, uh, is a step in the right direction. Listen, you've acquitted yourself well today. You've been here for many hours, as has your family. We thank you for your willingness to serve. Uh, there will be additional questions coming from folks, and we'd like to keep the record open until the close of Business Friday. My sense is you'll want to answer those questions fairly promptly. And uh, with that, without further questions or comments, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.